So, what do you want to do first? Hmm. You know, we haven't talked about why we choose to watch a movie first or not. Because normally it's normally it feels instinctive. Yeah. Um. So with this one, it's I want to say, do you want to start dark and go light, or do you want to go light and then start dark? Is kind of the two tones that I'm feeling with this. Yeah. I don't know. Um. I maybe end light. That way we can kind of come out of it. Plus, I think possibly people will be tuning in for Pig, and it might help to set it at the front. That's genius. That's genius. (laughs) This is why you're the head of the marketing team. There we go. You're part of our Nashville CA street team. (laughs) My name badge says so right on it. Did I tell you? Oh, yeah, I told you my coworker is leaving. Yes. Yeah. That sucks. I'm going to have, actually, like, have to do more work, which is um, not fun. Yeah. I think I have more bass in my voice today than normal. What do you attribute that to? Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, now I feel like I'm trying to do it, so now I'm self-conscious of it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It could be... Uh, I'm on limited sleep. I did get a nice, like, two-hour sleep in uh, as the bread was proofing this morning. So I'm really stoked I did that. Uh, could be the coffee. Could be the fact that we're recording this so early. Uh, did you not know. sleep last night? No, I slept for, like, three hours, and then I was up kind of all night. So it was a big night for me, (laughs) and I watched Big Night, which brings us to this episode. Hi, listeners of Nashville CA. (laughs) This is Sean, and we are here with our newest episode. We are talking about... Big Night and Pig today. Uh, there's my co-host, Josh, over there. Hi, Josh. Hi, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Uh, we are under a heat advisory here in Nashville. Um, I don't know how hot it's supposed to get, but the past two days have been kind of miserable. So uh, I've already turned off my AC, you know, to try to preserve some, some sound quality here. And my glasses are fogging up. Because it's so hot and humid. So, that's well, great. You feel free to pop that shirt off whenever you want. No, boy. <laughs> Can't get weird this early, right? All right. <laughs> uh, moving on. Uh, hey, I wanted to do a little bit of cleanup from last episode. We talked about Nolroy and Session 9. Mm-hmm. And we kind of forgot to have a final talk about Session 9. So, I just want to go real quick with basically a rating of Session 9, and then also a a little conversation about Brad Anderson. Oh, yeah. So, um, for me, it's Session 9. It's a movie that stuck with me. It's one of my all-time favorite, most unsettling, spooky movies. Uh, It's a 5 out of 5 for me. Peter Mullen is incredible. It's one of the best horror movie performances I've ever seen by Peter Mullen, and the soundtrack 
is one of the best of all time. I'm going to go four and a half. Uh, I think it lags a little bit in the middle, but otherwise it is also a movie that has haunted me uh, this whole time. Um, I love how little we see of what Peter Mullen has done or does and how much it's just played on him. It's just all his reactions and, and how he is in the situations and he does so much heavy lifting in this movie. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, And it, it was funny. As soon as we released that episode, I saw two different articles talking about it's the 20th anniversary of Session 9. Mm-hmm. So there was one on Fangoria and one on Bloody Disgusting. And the Fangoria one actually had an interview with Brad Anderson and Stephen Gavedden, which I thought um, was pretty interesting. I, I kind of wish they had gone into some more depth on some of the questions and stuff. It's a little bit surface, Yeah, that interview. But it was cool to see them together. They also revealed that they have an idea for a prequel called Session 1, which they pushed, had a, a treatment written for and everything, um, but they can't get the rights from the studio. But it doesn't sound like a very good idea to me. <laughs> Session 1, the story of Mary Hobbs? Like, I don't yeah. know. That, that sounds like real, you know, kids are saying the word sweaty these days. Okay. So I'm going to say that's a real, like, sweaty prequel. That's like, that feels like Conjuring Universe kind of thing or something. Yeah, and I don't feel like you can really recapture the magic of what this was. I mean, so much of it relied on the setting and I think the immediacy of the the cinematography, like that early digital look that they used. um, I just think it's, it's a unique piece and I would like to see them do more stuff. But it doesn't have to be in that world. That's a little yeah, much for me. Yeah, you're gonna set session nine in a like a rural house, or oh man, there's that word. God, <laughs> rural. <laughs> rural. I'm just gonna avoid that one <laughs> and say a uh, a non-urban area mm-hmm. uh, is where you're gonna set it, and it it just wouldn't. The main character of the movie is Danvers, so right. I don't know. That was a weird idea. But overall, Brad Anderson, he's done a pretty cool thriller called Trans-Siberian, which I liked with Woody Harrelson and um, Emily Mortimer, which was kind of Hitchcockian, Strangers on a Train-esque kind of thing. And he also did um, Happy Accidents, which I thought was a really good um, romantic comedy with Vincent D'Onofrio and... Oh, what's her name? Marissa Tomei. Did you ever see that one? I haven't seen either one of those. Um, I did see his uh, Stonehurst Asylum. We watched that at one of my uh, Halloween marathons a couple years ago. I guess six or seven years ago now, because it came out in 2014. Uh, And that one, at the time, I gave it a four star. I couldn't really tell you a whole lot about it now, because it's been so long. But Happy Accidents is pretty cool. It's kind of... um... 12 Monkeys-ish, where Vincent D'Onofrio believes that he is a time traveler, and I can't remember how he gets linked up with Marissa Tomei, but they essentially fall in love, and he's also fighting, like, trying to stop this event that's going to happen in the future, and it's a cool little story. Yeah. Um, Overall, you know, 
Brad Anderson is kind of one of those guys where it's like Neil Marshall directed The Descent, Brad Anderson directed Session 9. These are two of my absolute like favorite horror movies, but neither guy has ever really found that magic again. No, I think um, Anderson, at least, is a pretty good journeyman director. Seemingly, like, you know, he shifts around a little bit, kind of stays in the thriller zone. Um, but uh, he's not had anything that's like sparked that same amount of magic. The Machinist might be the closest, I would say. Uh, thank you. I for- that, was, that was one of my like first Brad Anderson mo- I think that was my first Brad Anderson movie, actually. Okay. I saw that in college. And I thought that was, like, I'd be interested to watch it now, because back then, when I was 19 and just getting exposed to, like, independent movies or movies that just were presented in a different way, I thought, like, The Machinist was fucking genius and brilliant. And now I think back, and some of it seems a little heavy-handed, but I'm not quite sure. I'd be curious to watch it again. He also did a... Uh, Masters of Horror episode. I'm assuming it's from the second season. Uh, I believe that was like set in a jail, and there's a cannibal inmate that gets set loose or something like that. Yeah, and I think the cannibal inmate looked like one of the um creatures from the Hills Have Eyes creatures. One of the people from Hills Have Eyes. Um, I don't know if that's the same thing. This is called Sounds Like. Uh, and it says an office drone comes to realize his sense of hearing has taken on an extraordinary capabilities that could drive him insane. Nope, that's not the same thing at all. <laughs> now I want to know what you're talking about. I just watched all the wrong turn movies, and so I need some more Wait, uh, cannibals in my life. That sounds like identical to a Masters of Horror episode where <laughs> Sheriff Andy from True Blood gets supersonic hearing and everything starts to drive him crazy because he can hear like his wife's REM. Like, he can hear her eyes twitching back and forth as she yeah. sleeps. That's the same one? Yeah, that's what I said, Masters of Horror, second season. Oh, I, oh dude, I'm sorry. I thought you said Fear Itself. Nope. Uh, I totally okay. forgot about that show. No, I think I might be talking about the Fear Itself episode. That's okay. a good episode of Masters of Horror. I like that one. The, uh... Because that movie's, that one's all about Again, same with Session 9, it's all about the sound design, but in that one it's just kind of how annoying can we make the sound design? (laughs) It's it's, it's a really overwhelming episode to watch as more and more sound invades this guy's life. Well, I just picked up the Masters of Horror. They were pretty cheap on iTunes, like maybe $6.99 a season, um, which is you know, great just for the film cigarette burns. If that was the only one I was getting, but uh, I'm happy to have them all. Cigarette burns is awesome. I liked dear woman mm-hmm. a lot. Um, oh man, we should do a masters of horror episode or something sometime. Cause I, I've gone through that series twice and there's some real clunkers in there. For oh yeah. Sure. <laughs> I don't know what the hell they were thinking but um there's some good stuff in there too it i'm i'm a big fan of that series and it's funny i i think mick garris is such a great guy for the horror community and he Mm -hmm. created that show and he has a great podcast but i don't think he's a very good director (laughs) (laughs) sorry mick i love you i think you're great but 
the stand the TV series. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Does that take care of our 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 past mistakes? Yes, I believe we have swept everything back under the rug where they belong, <laughs> and we are now free and clear to move on with this week's episode. And so we're going to start with Pig. Josh, where did you see Pig? Did you see it in the theater or at home? I did. I went and saw it in the theater the first time. Um, I wound up having like several friends that wanted to go see it, and then they all fell through, so I went and saw it by myself. Um, I think one, this is a good one to see by yourself. Yeah. It, I mean, it's definitely contemplative and put me in a very thoughtful, deliberate kind of mood afterwards. Yeah, as you said, you and I both, I think, um, we're left in a similar state of mind at the end of this, especially mm-hmm. with the music that plays. Uh, <laughs> just sitting alone in the theater, kind of, as everyone else walks out. Yep. And I just, I just had to wait for that song to end. And then when it does, it, and it just goes to, like, the nature sounds afterwards. You just hear, like, birds in the trees and stuff, and it was so... I don't know. Left me in just uh, it left me in a state. I came home and uh, my wife was having um a group of her improv folks over to do musical improv. They were actually uh it was a rehearsal night, but they decided to watch Schmigadoon, uh which I haven't seen any of, but God bless you. <laughs> uh I walked in like in this kind of dark introspective mood and they had all watched this goofy Keegan Michael Key musical. Uh, and I was like, man, I'm fucked up. Pig fucked me up bad. (laughs) I love that, though. When a movie, when you carry a movie with you for a couple hours after you watch it, I Mm -hmm. love that feeling. That's both of these today definitely give me that in totally different ways, though. I could see that. So um, I know you've watched a lot more of Pig, so I think you probably have a lot more background information. So what do you know about the production of this? Actually, very little. I know it's uh, Michael Sarnowski's first uh, feature. He co-wrote it with Vanessa Block that he went to um, college with. And she had done a documentary before this. And that's all I really know about him. Um, I think she was one of the producers on it as well. Uh, But as far as the background and everything, I remember seeing about it like maybe two, two and a half years ago. I remember seeing that it was happening and just because it was, you know, Nicholas cage news and everyone was kind of excited about any Nicholas cage news. Uh, that isn't a direct to video action movie. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's kind of the weatherman syndrome. Mm -hmm. Oh, what's the next weird thing he's going to pick? Also, Weatherman, completely forgotten movie. Totally. Is that from 05, I think? Something like that. All I remember is the big deal was that he carries a bow and arrow into work, and that was a sign of his midlife crisis. Yeah, it was like a much gentler version of uh, Falling Down, I believe. (laughs) Falling slowly. Yeah. Aw, that got me thinking about once. Uh, I'm going to start saying, I can't start singing. We have new listeners here. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've been going to the theater. Like I said, there's been very few people and I've been so happy to see movies again. And a movie like this, 
with the sound and the score and the sounds of nature and everything. I don't. You just you want to be in a dark box with this movie. Yeah. Just really let it sink in. And I like the cinematography. There's a lot of slow movements mm-hmm. and long shots and characters walking through frame or the camera slowly panning through the forest. And uh, this movie really takes advantage of just the Pacific Northwest and how stunningly beautiful it is. Oh yeah. And um, I've, I've now watched the movie three times. So I saw it twice at home. Um, You're a maniac. (laughs) Well, I wanted to show it to Elizabeth um, without having to pause it to take notes. Uh, and I just wanted to kind of sit with it again. So we watched it the day that it dropped on, on digital um, as well. And I have to say, even the time that I was taking notes, which means that I paused the movie, like at least once every scene to like jot something down. There are two moments in this movie that make me cry. And they got me even in that like interrupted stair steppy way that I was watching it. So I can't wait to get to those. Interesting. I. I feel like I know you're too, but I, I don't, I want to call them out as we approach okay. those moments. Okay. So keep an, keep an eye. I love how much you and I cry. <laughs> <laughs> we need, we need some kind of like tear tracker or something throughout this podcast. Well, and that's part of the reason I thought this was like the perfect movie for me because it is, um, it's in its tone. And it's cast and everything. It's a very masculine kind of movie, but it's also super sensitive. And I felt that I was like, that sums me up. That's perfect. Cause you know, like I've got a big bushy beard, but I also cry at movies. I cry at movie trailers for crying out loud. <laughs> so, Oh, all right. I, if I watched movie trailers, I might cry at them. But, yeah. Uh, and this, let's see. Was it pick? No, it was when we saw, my buddy and I saw Old in mm-hmm. theater, which highly recommend. Loved yes, it. I thought it was really it. fun. Um, I'm excited to rewatch it, actually. Uh, three trailers played, and I had to close my eyes and try to like close my ears for all of them. It was Candyman, Halloween, and Green Knight, all back to back to back. Yeah, okay. Those were all three movies where I knew I was going to theaters. And, uh, as George Costanza says, or excuse me, Frank Costanza says, mm-hmm. still, I like to go in fresh. <laughs> oh. uh, I mean, you know, a lot of people have said that Halloween Kills trailer is a real spoiler. So I closed my eyes for that one. And so basically all I heard was just like, Michael, 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 don't. No, yeah. Michael. And so I was like, OK, this isn't spoiling anything hearing this. That's, they did like a super short, it had to be like a 10 or 15 second teaser for Halloween Kills when I went and saw Old, um, it, which I love trailers and I, I never feel like I'm too spoiled by a movie. Um, I get, I will get overhyped for a movie if a lot of people are talking about it and then I kind of don't want to see it anymore. I have to wait for the hype to die, to die down sometimes, but uh, yeah, I like the little mini movies they play before the big movie that you pay for when you saw old did m night Shyamalan introduce the movie yes he did and it was so cool <laughs> there's a shot it's just m night Shyamalan sitting in front of a camera he's like hey 
My name's Knight. I've been making movies for the past 30 years and for three decades, and I just want to say thank you for coming to the theater. Thank you for supporting us dreamers, and like, thanks for being here. Let's go. Have fun. Enjoy this thriller. Yes. And I, I, it, it was kind of unsettling to have M. Night Shyamalan talking directly to me, but at the same time, I thought it was actually like really sweet and endearing. And yep. just like, see, this guy, this guy gets undeserved hate. I know, like, that there's that one Avatar movie that people are pissed off at him for, but overall, yeah. M. Night Shyamalan, who else is making movies like him? Like, just leave him alone, let him do his weird shit, and don't judge him for it. I think he is, like, dorkily sincere in everything he does, and I think that's fantastic. You know, I think the world could use more of that. Um, we watched his uh, uh, show that he produces and directed some of the episodes of Servant. It's on Apple TV. Um, and that has been a creepy good time. I definitely enjoy that one. Heard of it, but never seen it. It's, there are some real crazy camera techniques in that one. Um, it's just such a beautifully done show. I thought there was a lot of crazy camera stuff in Old as well. Uh, Old there- has some really wild camera stuff where at one point it felt like it was the jaws zoom effect or Mm -hmm. whoever did that first the pan and zoom but there was also horizontal movement to it or something yes i don't know there was some weird camera movement there was one of them in that shot where it like broke my brain (laughs) yeah all right i was gonna try to segue broken brain back into the plot of pig (laughs) but i don't know how to do that well how about we just start? We're introduced okay. to Rob and his pig as they forage for truffles. Uh, we see Rob eat some of the dirt or taste some of the dirt near the truffle site um, as they're hunting. Is this a thing that people actually do? I don't know, but just new listeners, if we have any, we're going full spoilers right off the bat, by oh, the way. Oh, yes. BT um, Because this moment is actually really important. This shows that Rob is capable of finding the truffles on his own. And then he calls the pig over to kind of pretend like the pig found the truffle instead. I think just to give the pig this, the pleasure and satisfaction of having succeeded. Yes, I can totally He see finds that. this truffle on his own. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if people are out there tasting dirt for truffles. I don't know. <laughs> um, we see Rob as he makes the dough for a mushroom tart. Um from things that he has foraged in the woods. What do you think about his dough technique, Sean, as a, as a baker? It's really quick. I wanted a little bit more shots there because I didn't quite see. The main thing I was curious about is how he incorporated the butter uh-huh. into the dough. Cause there's like a million different ways to incorporate butter into a pie dough. And everyone's very particular about theirs. So you can chunk the butter and roll it in a rolling pin into the dry flour and then add your liquid. You can grate it. You can grate frozen butter on a cheese grater. Mm-hmm. You, can, um, you can throw it in a Cuisinart and pulse it. There, there's so many different ways to do it. So I didn't get to see that, but I was impressed with his fold-in-half technique. Yes. Because I, I, I roll the dough on the pin, but that's a good technique to fold in half so that way... Uh, there's nothing sadder than when you get a really nice pie dough and then you fuck the transfer onto the <laughs> pie dish and, and it all goes to shit. So uh, that quiche 
or it was a tart, wasn't it? Yes. A Man, rustic mushroom excellent. tart. That looked so good. The and uh, he lets the pig he lets the pig eat out of the the cast iron. Yes. Which is actually later on I think that's used to really good effect. The uh, I love the cooking scenes. I mean, they didn't go too overly porny with them, and they definitely could have, but the two cooking scenes we get really kind of bookend the movie. Uh and I think yeah. Especially the second one is really beautifully done. With the amount of like Bon Appetit Epicurious YouTube channels out there now, mm-hmm. it's hard to shoot food in an interesting way. But I think I really like the music in this movie. Oh, yeah. It's done by Alexis Grapas- Grapsis and Philip Klein. And it's a lot of ambient swelling of strings and stuff most of the time. And I think that's where this movie really hits its peak is when it allows them to swell in with that emotion as Nicolas Cage is very quiet throughout this movie. He doesn't say much, and the music kind of fills the void of this movie. And um, both scenes in the cooking, I think, are just really beautifully done. And especially the second one conveys the intimacy of preparation of food especially when you're sharing that experience with somebody else Mm -hmm. the and we should say both of these movies are very um the second one isn't isn't as light on dialogue but they're light on incident they are not big heavy plot driven movies in that way they are definitely both character studies and uh it for me it was weird to take notes for these because it's not so much that like this happens and this happens. I was thinking back to our tremors episode when it's like, Oh, every little kind of beat matters and it pushes the plot forward. And this, I was like, I could have skipped half the movie and you don't actually miss any plot, but you miss spending time with these characters. I have like 20% of the notes length for both of these movies that I did for, (laughs) for no Roy or something like no Roy. I think no Roy in session nine. I went overboard with my note taking yeah. and I just had to kind of have a conversation with myself like <laughs> hey we we need we need to settle down here and just pick out the good stuff. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm with you though. This is um these movies are just there there's a lot of atmosphere here mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot to talk about but not really in a plot to plot point of point by point basis. Right. So, a guy called Amir, uh, which we don't find out his name till actually later, uh, Amir shows up to bring Rob some supplies and pick up the truffles from him. Uh, Played by Alex Wolf of yes. old fame. What a week <laughs> that guy's having in no two theater movies at once. Um, Alex Wolf, who you uh, might know from Hereditary. Uh, that's what I had to explain to Elizabeth like when I was telling her about it. I was like, oh, you know, the kid from Hereditary. And, you know, she. He he leaves a, a distinctive frame from that film, <laughs> so um, that that beauty mark that he has, yes, is, uh, I think that's done a lot for his career. I definitely think so. He and Cindy Crawford are one and two <laughs> on the beauty mark pushes the career list. Now all I can do is see uh, Alex Wolf in the same. Um, swimsuit as cindy crawford leaning over the hood of a car with a coke in her hand from like an advertisement or a pepsi whichever one it was yeah 
I'm just thinking of that scene in Hot Shots Part Two when the woman has the removable uh, beauty mark. Yeah. <laughs> Forgot about that. You should. It's not a very good. Oh, that might. Be... No, that's Hot Shots Part One. Excuse me. Is it? No, it's remember. Part One for Is sure. It part One. Excuse me, I've embarrassed myself. I. The big thing I remember from that is uh, the the olive and the belly button scene. Yeah, when they're when they're eating the food sexily out of the refrigerator. And he fries an egg on her stomach. Yes. I think. Yep. Yeah. It's a good ridiculous. I wonder if one. those movies hold up at all. I don't know. We were talking about those the other day, and I think because I revisited Airplane not too long ago, which is still pretty good. Um, I think maybe Top Secret might be next on my list, though. Of those to get airplanes, through. pretty good. Nothing, nothing holds a candle to Naked Gun One, though. No, Naked Gun One is like my pinnacle of comedy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's the funniest movie I've ever seen. It makes me laugh harder than anything else. The entire baseball sequence, every facial expression Leslie Nielsen made, it, it was all just perfect. <laughs> Uh, I watched all three of those in like two days. Yeah, and that was a bad idea. You gotta you gotta parse out your naked guns over a period of time. It's like psychedelics; like your tolerance builds up really fast <laughs> after you take one dose, right? And then say your second dose, if you just do it right after the next day, you're not gonna get the same effect. That's like uh, watching the show that it was based on. You ever watch uh, Police Squad? Yeah, I've seen. Probably like four of the ten episodes. Yeah. I've oftentimes like I'll put those on as kind of background noise or something. Um, and I think they're great for that because you can dip in. But if you sit there and watch them intently, they become not funny really fast, which is sad because they're actually hilarious. But it's, you just get kind of tone deaf to it after a while. The only thing that's just never gotten old and has never aged for me is all of the Carl Pilkington podcasts. Yeah. Ricky Gervais and Steve Merchant. I don't know what it is, but I can just listen to like their radio show and their podcasts just ad nauseum as background noise. And I don't, I know it, the material so well that it's like my brain just has to check in every now and then. And it's just like this weird comfort blanket. And if I ever end up with a girlfriend uh, she's gonna. Ha- we're gonna have to figure out a workaround because I often <laughs> fall asleep to this, like their podcast and stuff. And yeah. so, um, yeah, that's gonna be a long discussion. For me, that's there's a show called um, "You Look Nice Today," a podcast that came out originally years ago. They're now doing kind of a sequel podcast, but it was the. It's just these three guys. Um, one of whom is a stand-up comedian who used to work for Apple one of whom is a filmmaker and one of them is a guy who got famous for writing productivity tips on the internet. Um, but that I have like such distinct memories of working my shitty job, um, third shift as a, um, security guard and listening to that, that show as I drove around parking lots. Uh, and then I'd go home and wait for my kids to get up to like get them ready for school. And I'd play grand theft auto. And it was just the exact same thing because I would never do the uh, assignments. I would just drive around the city. <laughs> so yeah. It was basically the exact same thing that I was doing and just listen to this show. Uh, and it, that one is super comforting for me. You were a nighttime security guard, huh? Yes. One of the many things that I did. 
Wow. Well, while I go check on my bread, why don't you think of some nighttime security guard stories or things <laughs> that you can tell me about that? Because I'm very curious. Okay. Right back. Okay, you have two minutes and 40 seconds to tell me a story. Go. Okay. So uh, I worked third shift security guard uh, at a medical facility. It was like a bunch of doctor's offices and labs and stuff. Um, And it was just outside of Nashville uh, at a place called Skyline. And I would listen to Coast to Coast AM while I worked, which is perhaps not the thing that you should do when you're all alone at night for long periods of time and uh, need to be on guard. Uh, And I distinctly remember, because I'd have to walk up each flight of stairs, to hit the access points for the, for the, for your rounds, for your check-ins. Um, I remember like being in this stairwell and hearing, uh, over my little headphones of my Walkman that I had someone on coast to coast talking about, uh, in Siberia, they drilled a hole supposedly like miles down <laughs> into the earth. I, I have, yeah, go on, yes. Go on. And then they dropped a microphone down, uh, and they played the audio from that, and it is the most horrifying thing I've ever heard. I'm sure it's just wind and like I don't know the noises of the uh, of the tectonic plate tectonic plates pressing against each other or something. But it sounds like the screaming of lost souls, and that was drilled into my head. And I remember the rest of that night sucked real bad because I was on edge for the whole night. That's awesome. <laughs> There it is. Okay. There's a great song that uses, I believe the clip you're talking about is from a Don Imus show, if okay. I'm not mistaken. Hi, this is Sean with an editor's note. I was mistaken. It's Art Bell. And so there's a song that um, samples that clip. And so he introduces it and talks about this guy sent in a tape and he said his uncle worked at the scientific lab in Siberia and they drilled the hole and blah, blah, blah. And what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. And then this huge black metal drop <laughs> hits there. And so you get the guitars, but then you get the sound of the tape uh-huh. playing like those like screams on top of this wall. It's awesome. The song is called Chorus of the Blasphemes, and it's by, the band is Navalar, N-A-H-V-A-L-R. It's an awesome, gigantic wall of sound black metal song (laughs) that if you are into any kind of screaming loud music, I recommend you check it out. That sounds amazing. Yeah, once again, huh? The, The serendipity of this show. And all the weird little shit that you and I have in common. Uh, where are we at in the movie? Uh, we're about two minutes into the movie. so. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I feel like we've moved through a lot of it. Um, we uh, haven't. Shit. Oh, God. So, well, Rob puts away the supplies that Amir brought him, including putting fresh batteries into his boombox. Um, he has a pile of tapes... Uh, cassette tapes and he picks one of them that has a handwritten label that says for Robin 
Uh, he puts it in the boombox and turns it off after a few seconds of hearing a woman's voice. Um, and he just kind of sits there. This made me laugh because Community did a wonderful joke about this, about mm -hmm. when people have a dead spouse, they always have some artifact. And so on Community, it was like, Allison breathes in front of the camera and like, oh, you, stop, yeah. it's silly. And then she like, <laughs> falls on the bed with the camera still, like, still on her face in frame. And she's like, I love you. And like, nobody films these things and like talks. Like, this is yeah. so ridiculous. Um, so <laughs> I thought that was just really funny that he also had a dead spouse artifact. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, later that night, the pig is upset by some noises. And then some shadowy people break down the door of Rob's cabin, knock Rob down a couple times, and take the pig. And Yeah, they knock him on the head with a baseball bat. Yeah, it, and it's about that quick, too. I was expecting more of a kind of a, a, a longer action scene or knockdown drag-out fight. But no, it's just he gets knocked in the head and falls over, and the pig is gone. So we get after this, we get what I thought of as... Well, first he wakes up and he hears the door. There's mm -hmm. a rhythmic banging, and you look over and you see that's the door banging against the cast iron dish. Which yes. I thought was just a really nice little way of like, that was his pig's dish. That yep. was, you know, gone. So next, after this, we get what I thought was the, the Blue Ruin scene. That's exactly what I wrote in my you... notes. <laughs> yeah, you got an old car that's been stationary for a long time, so you got to get the tarp out off of it, connect the battery, all that shit. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's very Blue Ruin. Except for uh, the Blue Ruin, the titular Blue Ruin in Blue Ruin, gets him through the whole adventure. Uh, Rob's truck breaks down about 30 seconds into his ride into civilization. Wait, I'm, I'm sorry. We did not discuss why that movie is called Blue Ruin. Uh-huh. What? Why? I, I thought that it was just a reference to the car. It's, like the car is his blue ruin? Yeah. Interesting. I, have, yeah. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I think I was just like, well, blue is kind of a sad color, and I don't, I don't know. I guess I should think about things more often. Well, I thought of it because it's a car that his parents got killed in, uh, and he's been living in it, literally unable to escape their, the, the, his past. They were killed in that car? Yes. There's, it shows at one point that there was bullet holes in the front. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. How did I not, how did I not key in on that? <laughs> it took that me. That movie's way, that movie's way better than I, thought, <laughs> I, uh, than I already <laughs> thought it was. And I already thought it was wonderful. Uh, I, this is another thing about, we, we talked about car choice being so important in movies and TV shows. Mm -hmm. um, what's the other guy's name? Amir? Yes. His car choice is perfect for what he is. Yep. Which is a completely fake douchebag, so he drives a Hot Wheels car. <laughs> a bright yellow Camaro that... With, like, the, the stripes and, yep. like, all the accessory, all the little doodads that make it look like a toy, you know? Yes. It looks like Bumblebee. I'm pretty sure that's the same car that Bumblebee is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... So Rob, uh, his truck breaks down. He walks to a roadside diner. He goes inside and asks for Marge, and then he's told that she's been dead for 10 years, uh, kind of giving us a sign of how long he's been out of civilization, that all of his contacts yes, he, are dead. 
he looks it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, throughout this movie, this is the best he's ever going to look right, right now. <laughs> it only goes downhill. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Um, so, Amir shows up. He calls Amir from the, from the diner. Amir shows up. Uh, and not only is his car perfect, his choice of uh, listening material is perfect. Because we get this contrast uh, later between him and his, and his dad. But Amir is listening to this. Um, it's like how to enjoy classical music. It's not, he's not it's actually great. listening to classical music. He's listening to a, a man recite things on top of classical music. Like the tritones were in such heavy use in this time. And it's fantastic. Yeah. I think it's perfect of somebody who's, I, this movie is a heavy critique on just food culture. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a great way to show that this guy is so fake and so disconnected that he can't even get feeling from listening to classical music on his own. He needs to be told what yep. to feel and how to feel it. And to me, it was such a sign of like a thing that he is striving to be uh, and the shell that he has put up. Um, where he is not a genuine person. He's got this like facade and you see this kind of over and over in the movie of people's facades breaking down. Um, and this is one sign of Amir's facade, the the face that he shows everybody. That's a good point. I can think, yeah, I can kind of think of three characters who essentially have their worlds shattered mm-hmm. by the end of this movie. Yep. And that's not including, uh, Rob. Um, I also really like the little interplay as the guys are driving, uh, because Rob turns off the, the music and Amir turns it back on and Rob turns it off, but it's all done from one camera angle, one static shot. Um, and it doesn't even rack focus between the faces. It's all on Rob. And I can just imagine in someone else's hands, you would see a shot of their finger hitting the radio and turning it off. And then like a close up on the other guys, he's annoyed and he turns it back on and another close up of the radio. Um, and I think this exact sequence was in rush hour and in cop out probably. Yes. (laughs) Like exactly what you're describing. Yep. (laughs) And it just gives, don't uh, you ever put your hand on a truffle man's radio? (laughs) (laughs) Truffle man. Uh, but it just gives Nicolas Cage so much room to react and it like makes you appreciate all the little small ticks that he does um, in his reactions and his, his listening to these things. It's great. Yeah. Nicolas Cage um, just carries a huge presence in this movie. And mm-hmm. I think the clothing choice that they gave him, he looks really big. I, I, yes. I think it's just like a lot of flowing clothes, but as he strives into these restaurants and these worlds, um, he just looks huge. And I, I think that's, uh, once people realize who he is, mm-hmm. you, you get a feeling of like, oh, this guy at one point was this big. Yep. You know, he was this fucking important to Portland. And, but as you probably find out later, it didn't really mean much. Yeah. Not to him, anyway. No. Um, so the men go to visit a truffle trader 
who is in the woods, who runs this uh, dig site, apparently, uh, played by Gretchen Corbett, who I was kind of fascinated by the these actors who have only one or two scenes in this movie, uh, basically one scene each. Um, her and Fenway, who we meet later, are both actors who have been around since the the seventies or the eighties and have like long stage careers. You could have picked anybody to do these roles, but they went with these like heavy hitter actors who have done a lot of time on stage and have had a lot of bit parts in movies. Um, and I think it's such an interesting choice because when we were watching this, uh, I watched this with Elizabeth the second time. And as soon as you see her reaction, when Rob says they stole my truffle pig, and she's like, fuck, that's the reaction you want to see some from, from somebody on stage. When you're doing an improv, she's like, the woman goes, fuck them. And like immediately starts walking and starts yelling at everybody and just has this big moment where she goes with it. And it changes the whole energy of the movie in that moment. It goes just, to 10 immediately. Yes, it's like spikes up. It, it informs you of maybe if you're not aware of like how important and how expensive a truffle pig a good one can be mm-hmm. and how profitable they can be that this woman i wasn't sure if she was pissed because that crosses the line of you never fuck with somebody's pig or if it was also because her business is being threatened by having yeah. his pig being stolen i think it was a combo of both but i love that yes on the drop of a hat she went from calm 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 Fuck that! <laughs> Let's go. We're going now. We're gonna go talk to those junky fox or whatever she's called. Them. Yes, and uh, they do. The music becomes like really driving and percussive, uh, and it goes to a handheld look for a few shots as they actually follow uh, this woman uh, to her car, and then they drive to the camper of the couple who stole the pig. Um, and once again, we we only have like maybe two or three shots inside this camper, but it tells you everything you need to know. Like their world is so cluttered and there's like busted down radio equipment behind the one woman. You never get a close up on uh, the guy's face. Actually, he's only seen in profile. Um, and they tell uh, the trio that it was a, a guy from the city in a black waxy car. And that's all they, they really know. And uh, that's who paid them to come take the pig. They don't have the pig anymore. Um, Rob coerces Amir into taking him into Portland. Amir does not want to do this because he thinks Rob is going to like fuck up his style. And he doesn't want to be seen with him. Uh, and frankly, he doesn't yeah. know why he should. Uh, Amir, at this point, still thinks this guy is essentially like a truffle hobbit. Yes. Who's just like this eccentric weirdo who's a complete loner. Yeah. Uh, So they drive into the city. Rob appears to disassociate for a while. Um, They kind of play this between Nicolas Cage staring kind of glassy-eyed out the window and um, an overlaying montage of uh, the city as they drive into Portland. You see the the different buildings and the bridges that they head over. it reminded me of like an old noir film where they'll show like the, the signs of the bars and stuff like zooming towards the screen. It was very much like that. Like just the society was overwhelming him in this moment. What cities have you lived in, in your life? Nashville? 
Um, city-wise, Nashville and Colorado Springs. Okay, because when I go back to San Francisco now, after I lived there for about three and a half years, uh, it's very strange because like everywhere I go, there's memories of either work that I was doing, mm-hmm. moving barricades. So in San Francisco, I moved barricades and dropped cones through the night mostly. So mm-hmm. if like if there was a parade or a marathon on a Saturday or a Sunday, Monday through Friday or Tuesday through Friday, we would work 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. Dropping all of our equipment, so we'd go out to Treasure Island, which is this man-made, or it's an na- old ex-naval base in between Oakland and San Francisco. And so we'd, 9 to 5, drop all the equipment, and then the day of the event, start at like 2 in the morning, and just start running, and dragging all the barricades across the streets and linking them, or dropping yeah. cones for marathons and stuff. It was a crazy job, man. I saw, it was... Definitely sketchy and dangerous being some parts of the city <laughs> at those hours and stuff. And um, super dangerous just like being on a moving truck, moving equipment. You know, we'd be standing on the back of the trailer as it's driving through the city. So I got to do some really wow cool stuff where I got, it was like surfing through San Francisco <laughs> where I'm on the back of a 30 foot trailer going through downtown, just looking up at the skyscrapers around me and stuff. Right. So it was really cool job. Definitely. A job for when you're in your 20s and you believe you're invincible. Like, as soon as I got to 30 years old, I was like, um, this is really scary and my shoulder's starting to hurt now and, like, I'm getting older and this is not worth the risk. Yeah, you step off that truck wrong just one time and there goes your knee and now you're fucked. Yeah, oh man, I had so many close calls on that job that I, I consider myself very lucky to have gotten out with the minimal damage that I did. But I've had that experience even going back to uh, South Bend, uh, kind of the area where I grew up, where it's built up now, but I have these memories of how things used to look. And you get that, like, the two fight each other. You get a cognitive dissonance of when you're driving through of how different things are, but how, how it still retains the same feel, really. Oh, yeah. San Diego, from the time I was a kid, born in 86 to now, has... Like, I feel like the development has, like, doubled just mm-hmm. in what's, what's around there now. What used to be a dirt road called Black Mountain Road, where you'd have to off-road to get from one part of San Diego County to the other, is now a highway with dozens of housing communities. You know, it's, right. it's unbelievable, the sprawl that has happened in Southern California. And you're right, it, I go home and it... I don't have any friends around there anymore. Just nothing quite, except for being in home itself and going to Rico's Taco Shop in Encinitas. <laughs> uh, except for those two places, I don't really feel home in Southern California anymore. Yeah, you know. And so going back is, um, I often get like a, a strange, lonely feeling from returning. So when you go there, is it still the house that you grew up in, or? Yeah, my mom still lives in the house that we moved into when I was about four or five years old. Okay. Um, yeah. So there, yeah, and that's that brings up a lot of weird memories of just childhood and teenage years and stuff with my dad. Like every time I go home, it's usually like a pretty heavy trip. By the time I'm going back up north and returning right. to my house, I'm usually like emotionally exhausted. Yeah, I can definitely see that. That's one nice thing. My parents have moved multiple times since I moved out and it is uh, almost cleansing to 
like stay in their condo now, uh, as opposed to the house where I grew up that I stayed in years ago. I feel my mom and I slip back into like old dynamics all the time when I visit home. And yeah. I think it's just because the setting is completely the same. So what else are you going to do? Yep. You know, it's nice to shed that once in a while. Yeah. You know what else sheds? Pigs. They shed. Do they? They do. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, first they go to the, the gathering of the food trucks, and that's where we first meet Edgar. Um, this is where um, Amir gets his first semblance of, oh, this, might, this guy that I've been hanging with for years might actually be somebody. Yes. Um, uh, so they go to the, the food truck. Rob tracks down Edgar. Um, Edgar tells Rob that his name doesn't mean anything anymore, that he doesn't even exist anymore. Um, and you don't really know what their relationship was. Um, and once again, it's a, it's a scene with maybe two shots in it. Um, it doesn't tell you a whole lot, but as they're leaving, Edgar asks Amir if he even knows Rob's real name. And it takes Amir a moment. Um, Do you think he said Rob's name doesn't mean anything anymore? Because he's been out of the kitchen game for so long? Or because he owes a penance of getting into the fight club? Like He owes Edgar something before his name is worth anything. I think it is that Edgar thinks he's been out of the kitchen for so long. And that he doesn't have any sort of cachet in the city anymore. Um, which we... Oh, yeah. we see later that's not true at all. Yeah. Because when he writes, oh, okay, ah, I like that. That's, that's better. So he goes to the fight club to show that everyone remembers me. Yes. Ah, that's good. And that's because Edgar also runs this underground fight club and the men go, go to this. Um, and it's cool. It's in an old lobby or ballroom perhaps of an old hotel. Um, and this was like the sub basement because the upper level is now, uh, been totaled and paved over by a park apparently. Um, but Edgar got a cool fake entrance. Yes. Nice little shelf with jars that you got to move. And then a spiral staircase that leads down into this lair. Yeah, it's a cool, it's a cool little dungeon setup. And it's, uh, it feels very much like you're walking into fight club when they walk into this little scene. Absolutely. Uh, this confused me a little bit. As mm-hmm. he said, this is, um, what does he say? This was like a, a fight club for restaurant workers. Yes. And so I'm, so I'm cur- curious if, would a bus boy go there and put his name in and then he would only get 20 bucks and some random dude would beat the shit out of him. But then, Who's signing up to beat the shit out of people was because everyone who's in this club pain looks rich. Yeah. So I was guessing it was either like it would be like ex food critics or maybe other head chefs that would be there to. I was curious about this. I was wondering because the guy who Rob faces off against um, looks more like a maitre d' or a waiter, perhaps because he's wearing a vest. and Which Rob, would make sense why he would hate a chef. Yes, exactly. Like, is this um, kind of an evening ground for, for the different uh, classes within that world? Because, you know, the chefs definitely are the guys who, they're the rock and roll stars of the scene. 
And now normally also I wonder if if a chef signed up for that, is it an actual fight club or is it just a take a beating club? Yeah, because it seems to be, I wrote down that I was not sure on the logistics of the fights, but it seems to be how long that they can take getting beaten. Can they last a minute just getting punched rather than actually fighting back? Yeah, well, yeah, I don't think, because the guy who fights Nicolas Cage is drastically smaller than him. And yes. I'm not sure if that's just how they shot it with Nicolas Cage in the foreground, the guy in the background, and Nicholas with his giant flowing robes and everything, but he looks twice the size of this guy. Yeah, it's not until the guy knocks him to his knees that they're even close to being the same height, <laughs> which is pretty impressive. Yeah, so, so I don't think that guy would have signed up for a fair fight with Nicolas Cage with Rob. So, uh, yeah, it's it's curious. It's, it's not explained, and... Um, but I am curious about the dynamics of this weird fight club. Some weird little alternative society. Yeah. Um, it, the set also reminded me of the hangout where the vampires hang out in the Lost Boys. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. I just watched that recently. Yeah. Michael! And uh, the, the gist of the scene is that uh, Rob has told Amir that if your name means something, everyone will bet really high, and that's all that Edgar sees. And when they walk into this fight club, Rob writes his, his full name on the wall, and everybody starts laying down their bets, meaning that they still remember him and that he still uh, carries weight in, that, in the town. And like I said, it looks like it's just a space for the the underclass of the restaurant world to beat the shit out of the chefs. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever see the Bloodsport movies? Uh, yeah. It reminds me of like Kumite and like yeah. everyone's just throwing money. Yep. And it's just chaos. <laughs> uh, it was a classier Kumite is what I would describe this as. Uh, once Rob has gotten knocked to the ground uh, and they stop the fight, all he does is stand up and kind of shakily walk over to where Edgar is standing and asks about his pig. And Edgar gives him a piece of paper with a note on it. Uh, yeah, he paid his pound of flesh or yeah. whatever Edgar demanded of him. Uh, I really wanted to know who made 500 bucks on that fight, if Rob made any money, or if it was, were they betting how long he would last? This is. There's so much left to be said yeah. about this fight club and the economics of it. Yes, I'm very confused as well. Uh, but this is the road that, that I thought the movie was going to go down. Uh, I mean, this is kind of exactly what you think it's going to be from the setup of... It's almost a John Wick type setup um, or a Blue Ruin. And you expect him to go down this like violent route of... Um, getting his pig back and retribution. Uh, but really this is the only scene that's like this. And the rest of the movie is just emotionally devastating. What's the trailer like for this movie? Um, it's pretty quiet and, and contemplative. Does it present it as like, it's going to be a path of violence kind of movie. I think that every time they took every time he says, I want my pig back and cut it into the trailer making it seem like he's this vigilante out for 
some kind of justice. Gotcha. I have a friend who saw this, and I think that's what she wanted, or she wanted like him to fight his way through the Fight Club to yeah w- win his pig in a championship bout or something. Yes, <laughs> and such so thing. That was the worst movie ever, or whatever. I was like, oh, you just had different expectations going in. Yes, that's the only reason you're thinking that. Um, is this? We get to my favorite scene in the movie now. Are we going to the new, the next restaurant? No. First, we go to Amir's apartment. Amir takes Rob back and gives him like a bag of frozen peas uh, to put on his face. Oh, the music in this scene is beautiful. Yes. Just again, those swelling strings. It's like melancholy, but peaceful. I, I don't know. The music really sets a tone for this movie that is just somber is how I would describe it. Just real sad and contemplative. Yeah. Um, and we get, uh, Rob is woken up the next morning by the fire alarm going off because Amir was trying to cook him French toast. Uh, and he can't even cook French toast without setting off the fire alarm. Um, which is a very funny juxtaposition of he sells this high end food to these high end restaurants um, but he himself has like no grounding in that world at all, and really none of the the education that should go with that position. No, he's he's fake. Yep. Once again, just it's all bullshit with this guy. It's all posturing, but he can't even make scrambled eggs or French toast. Yep. Uh, one thing Nicholas Cage says is, uh, "You should use stale bread for French toast." I've yes. never heard that. I learned that from Alton Brown. He actually. Uh, talked about cutting up, I believe, French bread and leaving it out overnight uh, to to toughen up for the, the French toast the next morning because it soaks up the batter better. It makes sense because a lot of times by the time you get your French toast, it's a little, a little chewy, a little f- too easy to cut with a fork. I think yes. you want a little bit more structure. That, and it makes sense, man. I, I don't make French toast very often. You know, living, living alone, I feel like it just leads to so much less food experimentation because I have nobody to show off for. <laughs> <laughs> and just, I'm not going to make French toast for myself. I don't know. French toast I'll used to be keep... one of the things that I, that I would make for myself. Um, French toast and, and frog in the hole. You ever do a frog in the hole? That's, um, I think I've heard it called a Popeye, maybe? You cut the hole in the bread? Yes. Put an egg in there? Yep. Yeah, I've never understood the reasoning of that. I, I much prefer to keep my bread completely intact, <laughs> put it in a toaster where it gets toasted properly. Bread on a, on a frying pan just never cooks right for me. And then just fry the egg. Keep them separate. You gotta keep them separated. Offspring <laughs> was singing about eggs. They just didn't know that. I love getting, I love toasting bread in a pan with salted butter because it gets like nice and salty and crispy. Uh, and then you leave the yolk runny, so when you cut through it, it's all kind of right there. And it's already soaking yeah. up the, the egg right into the bread. You know, my... Uh, I guess I could talk about this now, since it's going to come up later. I um, uh, Yeah, I dated a pastry chef when I lived in Monterey, and she was kind of like my muse, where my passion for food was at its absolute peak then. And one thing that she taught me was, she's like, salted butter is bullshit. Just buy unsalted, and then if you want salt, add it. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, that's pretty smart, actually. And so that's what I do now. I just unsalted <laughs> butter and then sprinkle a little salt if I want it on my toast or whatever. Uh-huh. 
I can see that. So Amir relates a story about his parents going out to dinner, uh, saying that they used to go out on a lot of date nights. But one time they came back, and for this once, they weren't fighting. They were in a good mood. And it was, he remembers it as one of the few moments from their marriage where they were both actually happy. And he says that that was at Rob's restaurant before he left town. And it's this really like sweet little moment where Amir tries to drop his, his cool guy facade and connect with Rob. Um, and Rob asks what happened to his mother, and Amir says that she killed herself, um, that it was to be expected. And yeah, that was dark. It's I can relate. So heavy. I can relate with a lot of what he said here, just coming from a a kid who well, I was the third child, and by the time I got around, I don't think there was much love left in my parents' relationship, mm-hmm. and so most of the time it would be just real dry. But then every once in a while, they'd either go out to a restaurant or see Jimmy Buffett at a concert or something and you you just catch you'd catch an evening of like oh this must have been what it was like when there was still a spark right back when you guys were in college or whatever you know and now i just see like this decaying remains of a relationship and so i i, I could relate a lot with amir in this part well what about uh rob's little monologue that he gives then afterwards about how we don't have to care about things because the whole Pacific Northwest is going to end up back at the bottom of the ocean soon anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, this was one moment where in the theater, I was so completely mesmerized and enraptured that I was, I was nowhere else. Yeah. I was only in this scene during this time. I thought this was Cage's best moment in the movie because he doesn't get that much speaking to do mm-hmm. uh, but my god the gravitas that he has in this scene and the pacing the, the time he takes to tell this uh I, I i felt like time stood still during yeah. this moment and it happens again later with the fancy chef yes. where it's this feeling of nicholas cage robin can stop time if he wants to right and it's the first you it comes off as more stilted in this scene and like Amir doesn't know what to make of it. Um, but I think it's Rob's way of like trying to connect and trying to like let Amir into his life a little bit. Um, and it was really only upon like watching it again that this particular scene really struck me, but you know, it's uh, a beautiful little moment and Nick Cage hardly moves his face during the whole scene. It's just, it's, he's not doing any big lifting here. It's just so, it's in his eyes and in his delivery. It's great. No, this, this is definitely an anti Nick Cage performance if you're looking for the, you know, coked out, bouncing off the wall, flubber performance. Yeah. This is, this is Nick Cage when he's reining it in and yeah. dialing it in on a character. And I love both Nick Cages. Um, I'm a huge fan of his. I think there, there's uh, you know people give Nick Cage shit because he does so many movies like U.S. Indianapolis or whatever that, mm-hmm. that a lot of low budget stuff and things. But at least he's fucking trying. You watch some of these 
Bruce Willis movies of the past 10 years, and you can tell the dude's on set for five minutes a day, and you right. get to shoot him with two cameras at the same time, and that's all you're going to get from Bruce. Mm-hmm. And I, you can tell Nick Cage has passion for what he's doing. Yes. I, I really respect the hell out of him. That's, I've looked at a couple articles um, lately since Pig came out, and you know people are calling it a return to form or the first good acting he's done in years and all this stuff. Which Fuck I th- off. That's yeah. such like a clickbait <laughs> thing of like, oh, Nick Cage sucks, right? Like, no, yeah. dude, you're just you're just an asshole. They're buying into the meme of the like you said, like the coked out Cage Rage version, which um, for me, the movie Mandy, he get, he plays both sides. He does in the first part of the movie a lot of this type of acting where everything is very low and intimate and close. And then he gets to go off the rails and you get to see both versions of it. And to hear him talk about how he looks at acting and that he takes it so seriously and that he's pushing against the edges of what he considers to be people's expectations and good taste, that he wants it to be like Kabuki theater. Sometimes he wants it to have this like meteoric impact and that's what you're seeing in a lot of scenes um, where he goes over the top and someone like cuts all those together in a compilation. Like that's it's ridiculous and fine. Um, but taken out of context, it looks silly. If you put it in with the rest of what he's doing, he really is got such range and such control. I've got like so much respect for that dude. I, I think that was a, beautiful little dialogue about Nicolas Cage that you just gave. (laughs) I genuinely do. I I think you just summed up why I like him so much and why I'm willing to give him passes when he swings and misses or whatever and um, Mm -hmm. or makes a real low budget stinker like that Five Nights at Freddy's one that I (laughs) hated. Um, But whatever, I don't hold it against him. He's awesome. He's doing it. Uh, He also... Uh, Color Out of Space, I've been meaning to rewatch. That's oh, another yeah. one where I feel like he gets to play both sides of it. Yep. And he, he's constantly undercutting your expectations in the first half of that movie, where they kind of drop these hints that it could go into gonzo mode. and But instead, he's like a dorky dad. Uh, and he underplays those moments or turns to the left just a little bit more than you would expect. Um, and then when he does yeah. let it out, it's great. And Lord of War is excellent. Mm-hmm. One of my all-time favorites, and also a really good soundtrack. I play. There's an awesome finger-picking acoustic guitar song from that that I play at open mics and stuff. And it makes people makes people think I'm better at guitar than I actually am. <laughs> That's always a good thing if to have do in fin- your back If you pocket. do finger-picking at Anything, even if it's just like a simple appreggio, people are like, oh, you play classical guitar. Wow. It's like, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's tough. No, I'm not very good. <laughs> I'm not very good. I know a couple tricks. That's about it. Mm-hmm. So where are we going? We're going to uh, Amir scores them a seat at, at Chef Fenway's restaurant, which is the, the name on the paper that Rob got from Edgar. Um, he has to use Rob's name in order to score the invitation, though, um, or the reservation. Yeah, Amir has no clout. Yeah, he's the people don't really respect him, and he tries to act like a big shot. 
he was probably two seconds away from dropping his dad's name. Yes. Um, and Rob visits the house that he used to live in with his wife when they lived in the city. And he talks to a small boy in the backyard. And this is one of those scenes that I was talking about that literally has no impact on the rest of the movie. It's just like coloring for his character. And it's so it's such a great little scene. This little kid is adorable. <laughs> yes. And Nicolas Cage talks about the persimmon tree that he used to have in the backyard and stuff. And uh, the little kid's just like, I don't think we have a persimmon tree. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, I really liked this scene because it's just, you know, this, this movie is definitely a, a letter of sad nostalgia. Yeah. When you go back to things and things are different, things have changed. His old restaurant has changed. His old house has changed. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, I, I think that's what his performance really carries is just this, I, I think, sadness and kind of remorse at just returning to this area right but the next scene um it starts with the server at fenway's restaurant eurydice is the name of the place uh the server explaining the food in the most pretentious way possible it's wonderful yeah it is like i've heard this speech before uh I've never eaten anything smoked in pine needles, though, I believe is, is what they <laughs> is what it's coated in. I've had a cocktail that's been smoked before, but that was at my sister's house. She has a little glass box where you load like herbs into a burner and it has a little air pump that dumps the smoke into a little box. OK, uh, that's as fancy as I've ever gotten. I've never had what looks like dry ice pouring off my plate as it's presented to me. Yes. Uh, and it looks like it's one blackberry to me. Yeah. I thought maybe there were supposed to be quail eggs or something, but I think there's scallops that are under there. I don't know, but Nicolas Cage eats it in one go. Yeah. Doesn't contemplate it at all. And asks to see the chef. <laughs> and the server seems kind of just flabbergasted at what just happened. But she goes to get the chef anyway. Uh, this, I, what's this actor's name? Oh, of course you'd have to ask me. It's Neil. Well, I, while you're feeling, he is wonderful and excellent. And I, like you said, there's, there's three supporting roles in this movie, essentially with, um, the truffle lady, this chef, and then, um, Adam Arkin. Yep. Adam Arkin later. Um, and each three of these performances, I think, are excellent. But this guy is so good and so good at being so full of shit. But yet you can see that it's just the most thin veil. And underneath it, he's so insecure and does not believe in his product, does not believe any of the bullshit. He tries to, like, he can't even sell his own food. He stumbles through, like, the sales pitch of what his menu is. Mm-hmm. The the guy's name is David Nell. Um, I looked up his personal website, and it says America's number one favorite actor at doing David Nell stuff, <laughs> which I appreciated. So like, we got to get S.S. Wilson and David, David Nell, Nell on the podcast at some point. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine. This guy's career goes back. He was in uh, Splash 
and Spring Break uh, in the early 80s. Um, he was in My Blue Heaven. He was in Total Recall. Uh, oh, I love My Blue Heaven. Yeah. And he's done, it looks like a bunch of commercials and, like I said, stage work. Um, I can't imagine that we're not going to be seeing this guy pop up in a bunch of things in the next couple of years after this performance. The funny thing is, I probably won't recognize his face. <laughs> <laughs> just Sorry, David Nell, but I think you're just going to blend into the sea of other blurred faces that are in my head in uh-huh. about uh, a month, a month or so. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if I have partial face, bli- face blindness, because like, I can't tell you what most of my friend's eye color is. Okay. Uh, I don't know that I could either, come to think of it. I've also, have you ever had the scary thought of, like, if you needed to talk to a police sketch artist because, like, your spouse or something's missing and trying to describe accurately? Like, right now, Josh is missing. What are his, eye- what are his eyebrows like? I'd be like, I don't know their eyebrows. Well, what shape is his nose? <laughs> it's nose shaped. Like yes. I don't, he has a beard. It's kind of gray. He has a racer head hair, and that's about all I can give you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really horrifying to think about. Like I can picture people's faces, but I wouldn't know what to use to describe it. But that's only people that I've seen a lot. Um. A lot of times I'll meet people at mixers and stuff around town and totally forget about them. And I kind of have to go and stalk Facebook before I go to the next mixer to like try to recognize people, try to like imprint them in my brain. Cause otherwise, oh, that's you, good. yeah. Otherwise you yeah. do the thing where you're like, Oh, we've been introduced before. And then you feel like shit. Oh yeah. <laughs> One time this, lady uh who's around my age got really annoyed with me at a bar because she hadn't come into the bar in like six months and i guess i had talked to her one night and then like six (laughs) months later i introduced myself to her she's like yeah we met we talked and i was like oh sorry i was drinking (laughs) that's what happens at a bar (laughs) you you forget most of the conversations you have because they're all bullshit anyways so uh sorry nothing personal (laughs) So uh, speaking of nothing personal, there is nothing personal about this guy's menu. No, um, that was a great segue. <laughs> I had to you, call it out. It's, it's been it, ruined because you I've, drew attention to I it. I done fucked it up. Um, <laughs> so this is probably, so far, this is my favorite scene of the year. Um, and it's so simple. It's just this dialogue scene between these two men and uh, with Alex Wolf sitting to the side and his eyes going back and forth. Like he's watching a, a ping pong match. Um, I don't, As the scene starts, sorry, there's, there's like Japanese flute music, mm-hmm. like just the most pretentious. Cause there's, there's nothing Japanese about this restaurant, Yes, but it's just like what rich white people like to listen to when they want to be peace of mind or whatever. And there's also restaurant sounds. And as this conversation between these two chefs progresses, all the sound is drowned out. And you're just left with the isolated dialogue of these two men in complete silence talking. And I think it, it, it like doubles the impact of this entire scene. Mm-hmm. 
I'm I'm with you too. This is uh yeah, as far as like movies that have come out this year, this has to be in my one of my favorite scenes. Yeah. Uh so Chef Fenway comes out and he doesn't recognize Rob at first, but he he kind of goes on with his normal like chef spiel about uh we're glad you liked the food. We're really trying to do something different here. Uh, and then when he does recognize Rob, he's like starstruck. He used to work f- as a prep cook for Rob like 15 or 20 years before. Um, and Rob has like lost his ability to have a lot of tact in the world <laughs> since he's been out in the woods, apparently. Um, yes. So he directly questions him like, where's my pig? And instead of saying, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, Finway says, uh, well, I really need truffles. They're, they're core to the concept, to the winner concept that I'm putting together for my restaurant. And it's like, he's disassembling. He's trying to sidestep everything. And Rob directly asks him then he's like, okay, we're going to play your game. Uh, what is the concept? And Fenway responds uh, with some more like restaurateur BS. And Rob asks him, is this the kind of cooking that you like? Do you like doing this? And Finway responds with, it's cutting edge. It's very exciting. <laughs> totally <laughs> sidestepping the question. I'm taking what's familiar, but presenting it to you in a new way. And yeah, oh God, so many <laughs> just like catchphrases of yep. shitty new wave mm, gastrobiology or whatever the fuck you want to, whatever they call that. Yeah. Uh, and he says, well, it must be good. Well, everybody loves it. That's how he responds to Rob. And this is where Rob crushes him, right? Yep. Where he's, nobody loves you. Nobody loves the food. Nobody knows you. You don't matter because you haven't put yourself out there. Nobody knows who you are because this is all bullshit. This is all fake. Mm-hmm. And I think this was definitely... I don't know... If, I don't know if this is personal experience where maybe Rob felt like this happened to him too, but it doesn't see, it seems like Rob always was cooking true dishes from his heart. Cause as yes. we see later, he says, I remember every dish I cooked. So I think this is just an excellent chef telling a fake one. You need to be true to yourself. Cause this is all bullshit. Yeah. Uh, as he tells him this, like David Nell his face just crumbles and he starts stammering. He's like, I, 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 and I am hoping that like acting students, uh, use this scene in the upcoming years, um, because it is so tight and it's just these two men. And so much is done when Nicholas Cage leans forward and like looks at, looks him in the eyes as he's listening and then responds with his, uh, little diatribe about how nobody gets to know him. Uh, and he asks him, what kind of place did you really want to open? And David Nell blurts out an English pub. <laughs> like he can't yeah. hold it in. I wanted to make liver scotch eggs with honey curry mustard. And it's like seeing his, he's really happy when he says it too. And he's like, but it's a terrible investment. Who would invest in that? Yeah. Nobody wants that around here. Nobody wants it. But yeah, um, it's it's Nicholas Cage has 
broken this guy. And I love David Nell, as you said about acting students. I think he does a lot with a little, where he has this smile, and it's it's a fake smile at first, but then as Nicolas Cage continues to break him, it's a smile that he continues to hold, but you can tell it becomes harder and harder for him to hold this smile, mm -hmm. as he's like keeping it up like a shield, but his shield is starting to get wobblier and wobblier as Nicolas Cage slowly deconstructs every single aspect <laughs> of his professional life. Yes. It's, it's quite incredible, and... So well done, and yeah, and you see just like, dude, if that guy had, I don't know, that sounds cool to me, an English-style pub with two rooms above it. Yeah. Go out, uh, hang out in Portland, go back to your place, get dinner, have some drinks, and then just go upstairs for bed. Yeah. Sounds pretty rad to me. Uh, I definitely, I think I would much rather have a, a scotch egg. There's a an Irish uh, pub around here. Um. It's over on the other side of town, so I don't get to it very often. But I love the food over there. They do a fantastic shepherd's pie. But that's exactly what I thought of, was this like much more authentic, um, kind of gritty place than Eurydice with its clean lines and everything and bullshit that nobody cares about. I've never had a scotch egg. Ooh. It's, it's an interesting they look taste good. treat, yes. Yeah, yeah, they look really good. So this is one of the scenes that chokes me up every time I've, I've watched it so far. And I get a little goosebumpy just talking about it, so. This one was? Yes. Oh, really? I didn't have money on this one. Yeah, when, when he tells him um, that we don't get a lot to care about in this world. like That's a heavy, <laughs> heavy line. Yes. Like, that rings so true. Holy shit. Yep. Uh, it, you nurture your passions, because you're not going to get an, an infinite amount of them. Yeah. And kind of implying that this guy has wasted the last 15 or 20 years of his life building up this uh, version of himself, his facade, that is popular, but it's not really him. I wouldn't be surprised if that restaurant closes down within a week. Right. <laughs> to go through rebranding or, you know, I could see, I feel like this chef had his entire life changed in this three minute conversation. I hope so. Um. At the end of it, go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say Fenway does imply that it's Amir's father who was behind the the theft of Pig. Um, Pig never actually gets a name, so we're just calling her Pig. Uh, and he just says he's someone you don't want to make mad. And yeah, it kind of this dawns where, uh, on everyone at the same time. Finally, we get Adam Arkin into this movie. Mm -hmm. who I have not seen, admittedly, in a lot of stuff. When I see Adam Arkin, I mainly think of Halloween H2O, which I actually think he's excellent in that movie as Laurie Strode's boyfriend. Mm -hmm. um, he has a good death, too. Uh, but he's so good in this movie. He has um, Nicolas Cage essentially tells him, I want my pig, and Adam Arkin says, I'll give you money, but you're not getting your pig. Right. And Nicolas Cage keeps pushing, and Adam Arkin has a line that says, I control myself very well, but you don't know what I am. Yeah. And that is a scary fucking line to be told by any person. Yeah, he offers Rob $25,000 to walk away from it and just let the pig go. And I don't... How, how much does the truffle pig go for? What is a I don't know, because it seemed pig? like Amir was going by to pick up one singular truffle. I don't know how many truffles Amir was getting per load, but 
there must be enough money in them for every, you know, for all to go around. Some truffles, you, you know, you use the real fine cheese grater setting, and you use such a small amount of it that you can stretch it a long way. According to the internet, oh, that's a truffle dog. Huh. Well, how much is a truffle dog? A truffle dog is about four grand and then another five grand for the training. Wow. So I, I guess the four grand just gets you an Italian legato Romagliano dog, which is renowned for its truffle finding skills. Look, wow. Look at that dog. Yeah. What a name. I've never even heard of that. I just have normal dogs. Mutts. <laughs> People spend too much money on dogs. Yeah, I concur. My big dog came and, from the pound. Yeah, go rescue a dog. Don't I have my sister's French bulldog here, and I don't know. It, it just seems cruel to breed dogs that can't breathe and then charge thousands of dollars for them. Oh, yeah, and then they cost thousands more just to try to keep them alive because they've been inbred. Yeah, yeah, uh... So anyway, that's my dog rant. So it wasn't, it wasn't much of a rant. <laughs> uh, while Rob is visiting Amir's father, Amir actually goes and visits his mother, who was not successful in her suicide attempt, uh, but she's been kept on life support by her husband. And I wanted to know: Do you think this is his form of punishing her for trying and like tarnishing his name? Um. Why doesn't he just let her go? Because she's clearly non-responsive. She's been traked, and she's just living on machines at this point. Amira doesn't even get to talk to her. He talks to her from outside the door. Yeah, he can't bring himself to go in the room. No. He can barely uh, get the courage, or whatever you want to call it, to glance in the room when the nurse goes in. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it, it definitely seems to be a punishment based on Amir saying, I don't know why he won't let you die. Yeah. And I don't know if it's punishment for attempting suicide or if it's an ego thing that he needs control. And um, I don't know, but it, it definitely shows how vindictive um, Adam Arkin is. Yeah. And I thought this. I thought this would be a scene for you that would... A tear scene. No, it doesn't quite go far enough. And I've not had a personal experience with this, with having a parent in that situation. Um, so it weighs, it's, it's heavy, but it didn't get me. Yeah. It, it, yeah, there was flashes of, you know, when my dad was at the end there going and visiting him in the hospital and talking to somebody who's non-responsive and, being there surrounded by hospital equipment and stuff, it's it, it's a very alien experience, I would say. Um, and just kind of unsettling. Um, yeah, I would imagine. So, it was a good, it was tough scene to watch. I'm with you, though. It didn't, emotionally, it didn't quite get me there, but I thought um, Alex Wolf did a great job. Mm -hmm. I, I like him. I, I see some people complain about him or say he's not a great actor or they sucks and things or whatever. I don't know. I everything I've seen him in I've liked him in. I thought he was really good in hereditary. I I don't know. Maybe I'm seeing something different. <laughs> uh so Rob leaves the house 
um, Amir's father's house. Amir's waiting outside, even though they had this big fight before, and Rob said he didn't want to see him. Amir apologizes to Rob uh, for telling his father about him and that he lived at his camp out in the woods. Uh, and this is where Rob admits that he doesn't need the, the pig to find the truffles. Yeah. He, he just loves her and he misses her. And I think you see understanding wash over Amir mm-hmm. when he says this. Uh, uh, I think it's heartbreaking, honestly, that it's not about the truffles at all. This is just his friend, which yes. I can... My dogs don't do anything for me, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm going through a lot to try to get them back, you know, yep. and it's just out of love. That's the only thing. Uh, so yeah, Nicolas Cage gives him a list, right? Uh, essentially of, I need you to go get this wine and these ingredients. Yeah, he, and he tells him to use his name if he has to. Tell, tell everyone that he's with Robin Feld, um, which is sweet. Um, you know, it shows more of a connection and more trust. And I think uh, that Rob is willing to let a little bit of his past life into his current life um, in order to try to get to his goal anyway. Yeah, he's he's not running from who he was as much. Right. Which is um, important in his overall arc. Um, I mean, I think there's a scene, one shot, especially that I'll call out later that kind of ties this up a little bit. Um, But Amir heads to a mausoleum of all places to get a bottle from Rob's former collection that he left with the caretaker there. Uh, And she tells Amir that the wine used to belong to Rob and Lori. This is the first we've actually heard explicitly about his ex-wife or his, his now deceased wife. Um, Amir asks who Lori is, and the caretaker shows him her spot in the mausoleum. Um, and she tells Amir to tell Rob that she's saving the, the spot next to Lori for him, even though she's not supposed to. Uh, which what is do you What do you want to do with your body? Um, throw me in the woods. <laughs> I I'm with you, man. I I would like to not be embalmed, so that way I can just decay and feed mushrooms and yeah the forests and stuff I, i'm with you there man yeah i don't need anything i don't need to take don't up think, real estate i don't think that's gonna happen though yeah it's that's kind of a weird thing because like i like the idea of being buried to supply nutrients back into the earth mm-hmm. but i also don't like cemeteries I, I i would want to be buried somewhere wild but i don't really think I don't know how that's even done unless you have like a large plot of family land or something like that. And even then, I don't know the legality of burying dead bodies just anywhere willy nilly. Yeah, I think there's some probably some county strictures on on what you can do with a with a dead body. So I don't know. Maybe I'll be cremated and just spread around. I don't want there to be like a headstone or any. I don't. I don't need a plaque. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't mind being forgotten uh, when all is said and done. It's, I don't need to make my mark on this world or anything. It's it's fine. Yeah, I had my time. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Well, I'm glad that we talk about morbid shit like that. <laughs> no, uh, ge- genuinely, though, because I do think stuff like that's interesting, and a lot of times 
people don't really want to approach more taboo topics like that. Yeah. That's it's weird. Cause my mom and I have always talked about that. Um, and my mom has talked to the point of like, if she's suffering from Alzheimer's or something and doesn't recognize her family anymore, um, she's like, just take me out in the woods. Just, wow. she's, like, she's like, if I don't have any quality of life and I'm just a burden to everybody, I don't want to do that to anybody and just take me there and, and let the wolves and eat me and the deer and stuff. Uh, well, mom will shoot you first. Yes. <laughs> yeah. My mom and I, we've talked about like, uh, certain stuff like that. Or I, I have a funeral playlist that I need to update of like music that I want to be handed out on flash drives or something <laughs> at my funeral, basically, you know? One last time for me to make my friends listen to all the weird-ass music that I'm into. Uh, The Nicolas Cage, after they split up, he and Amir split up, Nicolas Cage goes to his old restaurant, correct? Yes. um, Which has now been changed into a bakery. He apparently left it under the care of his former baker. um, And she tells him she had to change it. He was a chef. She's a baker things change. And now you said this scene was what inspired you to pair it with Big Night after this. Yes. Because this little section of the movie kind of going into the very end of the third act here um, is, I think it deals with the connectedness that food gives us in the community and we see it played from a different side. Like earlier, we saw kind of the pretentiousness that can go with it and uh, the fake side of things. And here we're getting real human connection. And this one scene is from one locked off camera angle. It zooms in just ever so slightly over like this three minute scene or whatever it is. And they have this little talk about, yeah, the place changed things change. It's kind of Rob reckoning with that. And he just asks her for this salted baguette that she used to make. And it's almost like, um, is it Proust with the, with the Madeline, uh, the cookie that like, um, unlocks all of his memories, uh, of childhood of the first time he ever had one of the cookies and all the times he's eaten them since it's that kind of like a level that I think Rob is working on as he tries to prepare this dinner of like the importance and connectedness that the food can bring within your life and to the community. That's a great pick. I never heard of that Proust thing. Um, yeah. She tells Rob, he says, Oh, you've changed it. She says, it wasn't me. You're mm-hmm. a chef. I'm a baker. And it's it, two completely different trains of thought. It's everything. It, a baker can't pretend to be a chef and a yep. chef can't pretend to be a baker. They're, they're just not the same at all. Bakers, we look for consistency, and we're looking for consistency through chemistry and through wrangling in gluten formation and fermentation rates and the Maillard reaction to control the caramelization of products in the oven and stuff. And so it's it's very precise. We weigh things to the gram. We time things. Everything is very precise with baking, and there's intuition but there's intuition combined with mathematics and mm-hmm. with science. Whereas a chef, 
a chef runs um, almost entirely on intuition. And there, you know, when I dated that pastry chef, I would ask her like, all right, well, what's like when we made a curry, I remember asking like, well, what's the ratio of ingredients of like the curry powder to the tamarind to the, to the whatever. Um, and she said, well, I don't, there is no ratio. I don't know what you mean. But there has to be a ratio. It's got to be like three parts curry powder, two parts turmeric, one part cardamom or whatever. She's like, no, it's just, you just keep going until it tastes good. So that was where like that clash of those two different mindsets would butt heads. And so it makes complete sense that she switched it. He says a salted baguette, which I think is really interesting because as far as I know, every the only country typically that I know of that doesn't really salt their bread is Italy, where sometimes you'll get um, unsalted breads. But typically baguettes, especially French baguettes, they're almost always salted. So to, to call it a salted baguette, I thought was a strange thing, unless she adds salt to it, you know. Yeah. To get it like a crunchy salt on the outside or something. Um, but yeah, I, I really liked this scene, and I didn't, on the second viewing, I didn't even really key in until the very end that it was a one take. Yeah. It doesn't, they do that several times in this movie and they hardly ever feels like showy or anything. It just feels like appropriate, I think. Um, yeah. And I love it. I love when you just let, let the actors act, let them give a performance, yeah. let the audience get a feel for it. It's very much in that like Tarkovsky way. Yes. Oh, that's a great call out. Um, so I also had a question. First of all, did seeing this the setting get your get your baker juices flowing? Did you want to be able to be in there or could you picture it? Could you smell it? Uh I definitely like right now I bake from home. But that it looked very romantic to be there, but at the same time uh at bakeries it's like it's such a romantic job until you feel how lonely it is and it's it's an incredibly lonely job for most of the time you know mm -hmm. my last one i would my bread station everything was like down the hallway and then around the corner so i was cut off from the front of house from everyone every once in a while someone would like poke their head around the corner but i'd just listen to like five hours of podcasts a day <laughs> plus movies or plus music and you know, when you start work at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., um, it just feels real lonely sometimes, As you know, especially before the sun comes up. Once the sun rises and you start to get some customers coming in, the day gets a different vibe. So I, I missed it, but also every bakery I've worked at has been kind of stressful with bosses or management or something like that. So I've never quite had that experience where I felt like, I really gelled and was part of a team in a kitchen. And right. I think that's one thing that has kept me from wanting to pursue uh, another kitchen for the time being. I'm sure eventually I'll jump back in another one, but um, yeah, I like working on my own right now. Yeah. I'm enjoying it. Um, it's kind of, you're on your own anyway, but at least you're in your own space and you're calling all the shots and everything in your situation exactly and that's yeah i i wanted to make american comfort food because like they say in this movie 
when I kept just making French products and French shit, and I was just like, well, I'm not French, I'm from California. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up eating Mexican food and stuff, and so like now I'm making bagels and biscuits and sourdough loaves and more like American comfort foods and foods that are much more me and what I like and what I feel I'm represented by. And so I think in that I, I found a lot more pleasure. So at the end of this scene, after he takes his salted baguette, she gives him a pastry off of a tray and he asks for a second one. This made me think of big night. Yes. It's such a beautiful little moment. Um, when he, gets in the car and hands it to a mirror. But I love the fact that he, when she get, brings him the tray to pick up the second one, he picks one up first and looks at it and then sets it down and picks up another one. Like he judged that one, not good enough to give to a mirror. I love that. little. Yeah. Bit. Well, I, yeah, it shows that as pissed off as he is with a mirror, he still cares for him. And the fact that he chose, yeah, he chose the second pastry. Mm-hmm. It's just like, okay, he's, He's putting thought into this. Yep. You know, he, he cares about this this young man who's so arrogant and cocky. And and so this scene got me a little bit. It gives me some chills just because of, uh, I felt like they were on a, on a tightrope when they're, when they're playing out this scene. Um, because I didn't realize it was one take to begin with, but you can feel it. And you can feel how live it actually feels. So it was almost like watching a stage performance that's going really well. And you get that feeling of like, oh, shit, someone's pitching a no hitter right now. <laughs> and, yes, you know, I don't want to speak up, um, but I'm amazed at what's happening. Uh, what do you think? What was that pastry that she gives him that he gives to Amir? Uh, looked like um, I'd say it's probably like a savory tart. It looked it looked pretty flat, but mm-hmm. I think there might have been a little filling of something in that pocket. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking it's like a two layer tart dough, uh, either with like mushroom and cheese, or maybe like an apple fritter kind of. Okay, but uh, definitely think it's something along those lines. I mean, for me, I was like, "Hey, that looks like a pop tart." Yes, <laughs> looks like a fancy pop tart. <laughs> well, it's the second tart we've gotten this movie. Then yes. we got the spinach one earlier. Um, oh yeah, we haven't talked about the title cards. Oh now, yeah, this movie is broken down in sections by what the what the item of food is. So the first one we have the spinach tart, the uh, rustic uh, mushroom tart. Yes, and then the second one was salted baguette and a bird and a bottle. Was. A, a salted yeah. baguette, a bird, and a bottle is the this last portion. There might be one other one in there, um, in between, but. The guys go back to Amir's dad's house. Uh, his name is Darius. I only found that out afterwards. The, the Did not know that. Yep. Um, and this is where we get our other cooking scene. And this is the one that really is beautifully shot. Um, and, you know, it's not like cooking instructional video level uh, explicit about what's going on. But we see Rob teach Amir how to quarter this small bird. What, what kind of bird were they cooking? Do you know? No, it looked like some kind of squab or something. Yeah. I don't know. Bigger, bigger than a pigeon, smaller than a chicken. I don't know. Yes. Cornish game hen or something. Um, Oh, there you go. And you just get this feeling that 
uh, Rob is letting a mirror into his world in a way that he hasn't let anyone in in years. And Amir, despite growing up around this, doesn't have this expertise. Uh, and so it's this beautiful little moment of these two men kind of bonding while cooking. And it's wordless. It's totally wordless. You just see Amir copying Rob's motions and kind of he's sniffing. Rob is sniffing some of the, the herbs that he's putting on the on the bird. And Amir sniffs the the mushrooms and tries to understand what it's all about it was just a really nice little little scene i think the music in this scene is beautiful the lighting is incredible it's like this this soft lighting with dark contrast and yeah it's just it's a wonderful moment of almost a father-son teaching Mm -hmm. moment and it's just so beautiful especially after amir has essentially crossed him cost him his best friend yep and you know not not intentionally though and so the fact that you know rob is able to forgive and to move on um it's an incredibly powerful scene and i think speaks so highly both of these movies do in a different way of the power of food and community Mm -hmm. and passing wisdom on and just it's just sharing um together so amir goes and tells his father that they made him dinner uh while he's pouring the wine for them rob gives amir the credit for sourcing that wine bottle which i thought was incredibly sweet of him um he's trying to show his father show amir's father that amir is capable and kind of does belong in this world um and then the three men begin eating in silence. And Darius seems like he's mildly impressed until With he... The, the first bite. Yes. First bite is good. And then, yeah, it's that first swig of wine. Yep. Nothing. The camera cuts across the table to an angle we haven't seen before, this close-up on Adam Arkin's face as the mixture, uh, that pairing, the wine and food pairing, hits him. And it's 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 a beautiful moment, beautiful yeah. performance. Um, he immediately takes that second sip, and you just see him slipping like down the the memory river, mm-hmm. and he's he's lost. You know, there's no control now where this food is taking him. Um, and he takes another bite, and it, it it's so beautiful. He plays it really well of just. This meal crushes him in mm-hmm. a way that Nicolas Cage verbally crushed the fancy chef. He's now bringing, he's opened the wound of your still living dead wife and the grief and what you once had and the monster you've become now. Yep. And you just see everything wash onto Adam Arkin's face. And he says, why are you doing this? <laughs> like, why are you torturing me? And uh, that's an incredible thing to say about a piece of food. Yes. To have that reaction, to be to be personally wounded by what you're served. It, it's it's really incredible food moment in cinema for me. Mm-hmm. And Rob, this is where he tells him that I remember every meal I've cooked. I remember every person I've served, which feels hyperbolic. But in that moment, it speaks to 
how seriously and personally he takes doing this for people, how seriously he takes the creation of food and what it can mean to people. And it's both like he's twisting the knife and it's a kindness of taking him back to that moment with his wife all those years ago that they had their one good date night at his restaurant. It feels like both the bitter and the sweet are intended by Rob in this moment. That's a good point because yeah, I, I don't think it's entirely malicious, but I do think Rob knows that this will crush this man. Yes. Or at least knock this man back to two decades ago when there was still some semblance of happiness in there somewhere. And because when Adam Arkin stands up from the table, Rob doesn't really seem surprised. <laughs> he just kind of... No, no, he knows, he knows exactly what he's doing and what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and again, like, for this to be the climax of the movie... A character eating a dish and then crying. <laughs> this this is our revenge shot. This is what this entire movie has built up to. Yep. This is this is Rob's revenge. And it's it's a pretty incredible one. And so Rob says, Where's my pig? And Amir's father finally admits that the junkies were too rough with the pig and that she died as soon as he got her, basically. Um, Which makes all those screams that the pig makes as they're kidnapping it all the more haunting. And we get almost a repeated camera movement of when Rob first got assaulted the night that the the pig was stolen. Um, Which I guess is just the night before. But Rob falls to the floor and the camera kind of falls with him. Uh, And we've seen this when he got hit with the the bat and when he got beaten up by the, the maitre d' in the fight club. Um, this same kind of motion, except for he doesn't get off the floor this time. We don't get him rising. Uh, the scene ends with him not getting up and Amir looking at his father and as if he's truly seeing him for the first time, because Amir has kept defending his father. When Rob said that it didn't seem like he was very supportive, Amir tried to play it off and say, well, you know, he's, he's trying to teach me how to make my own way. And I've got to be tough in this business. And I think it's for everything. It's the first time that Amir has to admit to himself how cold and detached and cruel his father has become. Yeah. And also this guy that he's idolized and tried to pattern his life in the same manner. Mm-hmm. What path is this putting him on? Now yeah. there, there's, there's a lot there. Um, I, I think Alex Wolf really plays this well, especially the last shot that we get of Alex Wolf later. Um, yep. I, th- I think shows the gravity of the past 24, 36 hours that have, that have had on his life. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, Chef Fenway isn't the only one who kind of changes his ways afterwards. Um, Let's get a pig sequel where we just see everyone <laughs> and how they fix their lives and are now happy. <laughs> Pig to Rob in the city. Ooh, I like it. Uh, Amir and Rob drive back to the roadside diner near Rob's camp. Uh, this this next segment was the least believable part of the movie for me because Amir asks the waitress what kind of pie they have, and she says they don't have pie. They don't do pie at that restaurant. I don't believe that. I don't buy that for a second. I don't believe um, that they don't do pie, but they do brownies and cheesecake. 
I don't know. You you live in the central time zone, Josh. <laughs> I, I am from the Midwest. I think, I think that idea of, like, everywhere has pie is has not quite <laughs> made its way to the West Coast, honestly. Like, I, I genuinely, there's not that many times where I've, like, can remember eating pie at a restaurant, nor do I recall seeing it. Uh-huh. I know this is a diner, so it's a little different, but I think that might be a little bit of a Midwestern influence on you. <laughs> I can see that. Okay, I'll cop to that, totally. Um, they do, they settle on brownies and coffee instead. And Sounds great. Yeah, I would, t- I would late night brownies, I'm down for that. Um, Rob says that if he had never gone looking for his pig, and never found out about her fate, that she would still be alive in his head. And Amira says, yeah, but she wouldn't be. And Rob accepts this. And this is the reaction shot here, especially on the the my third time watching it. Um, it hit me that it's not just, he's not just accepting the loss of his pig. This is the first time he's accepted the loss of his wife. Like, having to go back and face his past it all kind of culminates in this moment. And I don't think he's talking about the pig anymore. I think that he is finally talking about Lori and that he's admitting that she's gone. Wow. Yeah. I, they don't play up like his wife, his wife memories when he visits his old house, he talks about the persimmon tree and stuff, but yeah, obviously there's a lot of stuff there that he's uncovering. I, I think, I think you're spot on with that. Um, and I, in a way that I hadn't quite considered, but yeah, I think the ending of this movie completely validates and supports what you're saying, mm-hmm. because as we, he's able to push through the memory that he, you know, the tape that he never could listen to. And now he can. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's, uh, so yeah, as he and, uh, what's his face? Alex Wolf leave, and Nick Cage says he's gonna walk home. Alex Wolf like collapses in his driver's seat. Yes, and you just see like the weight of everything, and his father and of his mother, and everything is bearing down on him now. Mm-hmm. And he just witnessed this man go through like a life change, and he's on one of his own now, probably or presumably because of what's happened in the last day or day and a half. Uh, and I like it. It's, he turns off the classical music um, and just kind of curls up on his side in his car. I think he's going to be all right. Yeah. I think he learned a lot from this. Uh, yeah. After this, we see Nicholas Cage walking back to his house. And one of my favorite shots of the movie happens here. There's a tracking shot that follows him as he's walking through the woods. Mm-hmm. But then you realize that we're shooting through a window from the interior of his cabin. Oh, yeah, and yeah. So the tracking shot continues, and we see the wall where his canned veggies are, and his salt, and his knives, and his kitchen. And it's just, you know, it's a little three-second shot, but there's so much living done on that wall. Mm-hmm. And then we follow him again through the next window. I just thought it was a really beautiful, slow-movement shot that this movie does extremely well again and again. Yeah, and it's like, especially going back that they highlight the kitchen area in his cabin, the fact that he's returning home, like that is his home, and 
he's coming back to it, um, a changed man. But there is that semblance of like the the end of the loop at, at the hero's journey where you have to return home even after everything you've seen. Uh, and that's where he is. And he comes into his his cabin and puts on the tape marked for Robin that Lori had made him. And when the song started, this, I don't know if we've discussed this at all. Bruce Springsteen is one of my favorite artists. Like, okay. I You're lo- a white guy in your forties. It makes yes, sense. It's perfect. Uh, I have, <laughs> I have father issues. Um, I like cars. It, it all is in there. You, wor- you worked in a steel mill. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so when the song started and she's playing his, uh, her version of Bruce Springsteen's I'm on fire. I was like, what the fuck is this movie? Was it just made for me specifically? Like, <laughs> that's exactly what I, I looked around the theater. I was like, is anyone else getting this as much as I am? <laughs> it's a beautiful rendition and her voice is beautiful. And he sits down on his bed and the lighting in this last shot is quite spectacular. And mm-hmm. I don't even know where the light above him is coming from. It feels like it's heaven sent, honestly. Yes. Um, and the final shot, it, this I think the more times I watch this movie, the harder this end is going to hit me. Because mm-hmm. I think it hit me harder the second time, but he looks at Pig's bed and then looks up essentially to his wife as mm-hmm. he listens to her tape. And man, that's a emotional, heavy ending. I can feel myself getting worked up right now just <laughs> talking here. about it, you know? God, um, so sad. And just one of those movies that just, I'm really glad we didn't, you're so smart to end on Big Night. Because right now I'm like so sad and depressed. Uh, it's beautiful. And, but it's just, it hurts, but that's grief. And that's moving on. Yes. It's just, it's a painful part of life. But, you know, those memories, uh, they're always there. especially you know, smell memory and food memories. Mm-hmm. And, and I, th- yeah, I just, it's a beautiful contemplative movie about your past and loss and grief. And, and then also a critique of, you know, food culture and stuff. I really, really good. Really, really good. And I think for me, the, the critique of a certain kind of American cuisine and the, kind of the discussion um, that this movie could engender between art and commerce and passion versus selling out um, and holding on to what you believe is true and holding on to the things that you love. That's kind of the connective tissue between these two movies for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I just the power of gesture also. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, doing a small thing for somebody to to show that you care or to show that they mean something to you, mm-hmm. whether that be to cook them a meal or to teach them how to cook that meal or so, I, food is very powerful, and I I think my feeling of romance with food and my passion for food is kind of tidal. It, it ebbs and flows. Yes, um, depending on where I'm at in my own headspace and my own life, but I think it's always there deep down that passion for food. So I wrote at the end of my review here, 
in big bold letters, rate the damn movie. <laughs> so yeah. I wouldn't forget this time. So yes, Sean, what that. do you what do you rate this movie? After seeing it in theater for the first time, I was on a four out of five, but watching it the second time and discussing it and feeling his wife's presence more in the movie, uh, it's four and a half out of five mm-hmm. for me. I, I think it's excellent. Uh, How about you? Same here, four and a half out of five. Um, and I gave it the little heart, meaning that I liked it on Letterboxd. Um, because it, I mean, like I said, I, I can cry at a commercial or at a movie trailer, um, because it pulls the right strings and I have to give it a little bit of respect, but I don't necessarily give it the little heart, uh, those types of situations. This hit me in the heart and has stayed there now for the couple weeks since I saw it the first time. I think it's really special. So. That's a good way to put it. I can be easily manipulated to tears. Yes. But that doesn't mean that it's meaningful or powerful. Yep. I feel like Ricky Gervais is good at that. Oh, yeah. It's like the the heartstring pull, even though there's nothing really there. I can definitely see that. With like shows like Derek. I watched the first season of Derek, and that's basically all it is. <laughs> you know, I used, to, I used to love Ricky, but that was like 20 years ago. He's, he kind of sucks now. Yeah. Uh, we can't get on another tangent. Okay, that was the end of Pig. <laughs> I, I can't even remember what movie it was. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, I was looking up the chords for Bruce Springsteen, I'm on fire. Yes. Do you, do you know the song Secret Garden? Um, yeah. It, it was in Jerry Maguire? Yep. She let you in the yeah, yeah, yeah. house. If you that song's really dirty. Do you know the words to that song? Oh yeah, it's it's all about a vagina, right? She'll let you in her house if you come in if you come knocking late at night. She'll let you in her mouth if the words you say are right. If you pay the price, she'll let you deep inside, but there's a secret garden she hides. See, I think if Bruce Springsteen seeing those lyrics clearly, people would hear that, and and Jerry Maguire be like, "Ew, get this pervy song out of here!" But instead, it's it's a good song though. I love that song. Jerry Maguire is a great movie. Yes, it is. Genuinely. Who did that? That was... Sh- uh, Cameron Crowe? Shoe. Cameron Crowe, that's right. I thought it was your boy. Um, Soderbergh? S- Soderbergh. I kind of want to stop the local recording real quick just to save it, just in case. I'm recording. Uh, there's a bit of a weird gap. Uh, you'll figure it out. Um, you want me to clap or do you want to clap? I'll clap again. Yep. Since I clap last time. Three, two, one. Good clap. Thank you. A good clap? That's what Stanley Tucci got at the end of the first screening of Big Night... Oh, no. Oh, boy. You know, you're not far off. It was nominated (laughs) for the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. 
Oh, shit. You just cemented that that's our intro now, didn't you? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> oh, damn it. All right, moving on. <laughs> I guess we're talking about Big Night. 1996 movie directed by Campbell Scott, Stanley Tucci, starring Stanley Tucci himself, Tony Shalhoub, Minnie Driver, Ian Holm, Isabella Rossellini, and rounding it out, Allison Janney. Josh, this was your pick. Mm-hmm. So... You picked this based off the bakery scene, and just to give a little insight into how our minds work, you asked me what I wanted to pair Pig with, and my first instinct was to more follow that scene with the truffle lady, uh-huh. and so I was going to go Winter's Bone, where it's a character who gets sucked into the seedy underworld of crime and shit as they're looking for something, as right. Jennifer Lawrence is looking for her, her disappeared parent or uncle i can't remember what she's she's looking for someone in that movie um so but i think i think this is a much better pairing (laughs) i I don't know i I, you could pair those other two but that would be such a dark dark episode i kind of like the dichotomy of a dark food movie and then a bit of a brighter food movie well the first thing that struck me to pair pig with would have been mandy because they both start kind of the same way. Something is taken from Nicolas Cage, and then he spends the rest of his time on a path of uh, revenge or getting it back. Um, they just head in totally different directions. But I like it, but it's it's a little too on the nose or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little too much. It's a little too much Cage. Yes. I don't know. You know, I I think I think this was a good balance that you found. So, what's good. your history with Big Night? So I first watched Big Night um, on VHS years ago. I was probably 18 or 19 uh, when I first saw it. And it just struck me as such a sweet-natured, charming movie. Um, And, you know, kind of counter-programming to a lot of the independent stuff that was happening at that point in time. And a lot of, especially what I was taking in in my life, which would have been Tarantino and Coen brothers and, um, way of the gun and all that kind of stuff. Um, boondock saints came around on, around the same time I was into Stanley Kubrick. So something like this is like a total departure for me. Yeah. 96 to, you know, mid or late two thousands was just a real snarky negative time for movies. Comedies yes. were really raunchy. Everything kind of had to be a downer or anti-heroes or, you know, picking shit apart, kind of. So, yeah, to see this movie with two guys who aren't even perfect. They're, they're a protagonist, but they both have flaws. Mm-hmm. But still to not, excuse me, to focus on that, to just present as this fun, high-energy movie and not get bogged down in the, the dark character stuff or whatever. I, I don't know. It's really fun. And there's high stakes in this, but but it's never quite beat over your head. The stakes they kind of bring it up once, and then yes, that's kind of the end of it. Uh, I do have to tell you, I am so in the bag for this movie right from the jump. Uh, I do own the Stanley Tucci cookbook because of this movie, and he he lays out in there how to make a timpano, which is the the centerpiece meal uh, from the film. Oh, cool! Yes, I f- I hear he's. Doing um, a food show or a drinking show or something now, something that like people are really into, and it's yeah. just like p- 
people just want to go hang out with Stanley Tucci. The Tucci, yeah, he's great. <laughs> so the Tucci, let's talk about the Tucci. The Tucci is a man who, I don't know what else I've seen him in, except for a terrible, terrible Netflix copy movie of Bird Box. I don't even remember what it was called. But, like, if you, if you make noise, the, the demon creatures will get you, and so he, everyone has to be quiet, and I, I, I don't know what Stanley Tucci was doing in this movie. <laughs> uh, so it's a knockoff of Bird Box? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, uh, Tucci Netflix. Get down to the bottom of this real quick. Yeah, you'll figure it out. Uh... No, I didn't get to the bottom of it. <laughs> I didn't get to the bottom of it. Shit. The Silence is what it was called. Oh, it's so bad. Okay. The, the Silence from 2019. Oh, with Miranda. When the world oh, is like under her. attack from terrifying creatures or hunt their human prey by sound, 16-year-old Allie Andrews, who lost her hearing at 13... And her family seek refuge in a remote haven. It's Bird Box. It's it's Quiet Place and Bird Quiet Box. Quiet Place and Bird combined. Box, yeah. And but Miranda, Miranda Otto, Kieran Shipka, and John Corbett. I like all those people. I don't wish this movie on any of those people. That's sad. <laughs> it's, it's shockingly low budget and some real fucking awful CGI. But there is one cool part where. There's, like, a cult that springs up within 36 hours in the movie. Spoilers for this terrible Netflix movie. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, there's a cult that's, like, already sprung up. They've all cut their tongues out within 48 hours of this thing happening. And they sent, basically, a child suicide bomber. And so what it was, they strapped a bunch of cell phones to a kid underneath their sweatshirt and set a bunch of alarms. And so they sent the kid into this house to, like, take refuge from them. And then all of a sudden, like, 18 different cell phone alarms start going off, uh-huh. and then the creatures attack. It's dumb. Don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> like most Netflix originals, don't watch it. That sounds real gross. I don't like that. <clears throat> um, so, Tucci has been around since, like, the mid-80s. Um, at least uh, on the big screen. Um, Oh, yeah. Apparently on the small screen, about the same amount of time. I thought he had a TV history that lasted longer, but apparently he doesn't. Um, I do remember him fairly early on from movies like Monkey Shines and Quick Change. Uh, I've seen Monkey Shines, but I don't remember him in it. Yeah. Uh, it's not a long time ago. It's good. And what about Quick Change? Have you seen Quick Change? No, never heard of it. The One of the only things directed by Bill Murray. Yeah. Really? Yep. Oh, interesting. I I don't idolize Bill Murray as much as some people seem to. Okay. The the asshole side of Bill Murray is just a real turnoff for me. <laughs> as much as I like some of his characters or find him funny in some things, the fact that underneath it all there's always an asshole mm-hmm. slightly coming through just I don't know. I think characters like that bug me because I used to think that's how I wanted to portray myself as like the sarcastic asshole guy and stuff. Yes. And it works in movies, but then when you're that guy in real life, people don't 
respond to you well, and then you just suck and you're negative and nobody wants to hang out with you because you're just a bummer to be around. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone kind of goes through that that phase. At least all dudes do. Oh, yeah, I, I left it behind in my... uh, Probably around 27 years old was yeah. when I was like, I should probably change this about myself because yep. nobody seems to like it. Uh, recently, though, Tucci has been in the show Central Park, which is uh, an Apple TV program uh, by the people who made Bob's Burgers and home movies. Um, it's a really fun show. It's like uh, with a bunch of musical numbers and David Div- Diggs from Bob. Hamilton. Oh, what? I can't watch Bob's Burgers. Why not? The chins. <laughs> That's not what I was expecting. Okay. I don't like how their chins are drawn. It's just upsetting to you on a certain level? Yeah, it's just like worm people walking around. I just don't like it. Okay. That's fair enough, yeah. I guess. <laughs> we need to get into this. This episode has gone on for so long. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, like I said before, Big Night was a uh, big hit when it first came out. It cost around $4 million. Uh, box office was around $14 million, which for, you know, such an indie movie as this is really, really good. Um, and it won several film critics uh, awards. Um, they won Best New Director. Uh, Tucci and his cousin who wrote the movie won the Best uh, Independent Spirit Award for the Best First Screenplay. Um, and I think I went back and actually watched the um, uh, Siskel and Ebert um, take on this movie, and they both loved it from the time that it was like a charming breath of fresh air uh, at that point in time. And I have to agree overall. I think this would have been a fun one to see in a theater. Yeah. I think definitely with like a crowd, like at a film festival type thing, it would have been great. So yeah, for sure. Picture the Jersey shore, the mid 1950s. There's two brothers who run an Italian restaurant called paradise. The older brother is Tony Shalhoub. Uh, his name is Primo in the movie. The Secundo is the younger brother. And I love that it's like already you have this sibling rivalry between the two because one is named number one and one is named number two. <laughs> first, yeah, we got first and second. Yeah, and and Tony Shalhoub has a way cooler mustache. Yes, and uh, <laughs> although uh, Tucci gets to dress better in the movie, yes, he does. Yeah, uh, so yeah, I like so Tucci smoking a cigarette. We go into the kitchen, and I love the open layout of this kitchen Mm -hmm. how you have the cutting board right in front of the stove and so everyone there's so much space in this kitchen that everyone's able to kind of like walk around and jump on a different station and help each other out yes which definitely comes into play later um we see the two brothers bicker a little bit in the kitchen while they prepare for the evening's meals uh they have one worker who works with them christiano does he say a single word in the movie i don't think so I don't think he ever spoke oh, a word. He does. He, there is a point where um, Secundo asks him to go get the booze out of the car, and he doesn't direct it to anybody. But he goes, thank you, Cristiano. That would be very nice of you, Cristiano. Uh, as an aside, as he's walking off the off screen. 
So he doesn't actually talk to anybody face to face in the whole movie, I don't think. Yeah, but he's always there. <laughs> yep. But he's he's played by Latin Heartthrob from the late nineties, early two thousands, Mark Anthony. Uh, was wait really? Yes. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I didn't realize that's who that was. Yeah, he's totally <laughs> uh kind of skinny and malnourished looking in this role, which is not like at all kind of the, the hip grinding Lothario that I picture him as later. Oh, hip grinding Lothario, that's a hell of a phrase. <laughs> Thank you. If somebody ever labels me as a hip grinding Lothario in my life, I'll be very happy. Maybe you do want a, a plaque after that one if someone calls you hip grinding Lothario. Yeah, especially because I don't even know what Lothario means. <laughs> but it sounds good. It's, it sounds it... real good. Uh, I love one of the things that happens is when they hit the water mm-hmm. and then they have to wait and you hear go, 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 go. My kitchen sink, since I moved in, I don't know if it gets air in there or something, but every fucking time I hit it, go, 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 go. And the, it, you know, it has water in the pipe or something that has yeah. to knock out every time. I'm used to it now, and then people come over, and I forget that it's even a thing. And they're like, oh, what's with your sink? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how to plumb. <laughs> yeah, uh, Secundo says, remind me to call the plumber back so I can kill him. Uh, yeah. But the first of, uh, customers of the evening arrive, and they give uh, Secundo a hard time. One of the customers has ordered the risotto, and on the menu it said that it that it has shrimp and scallops in it. Uh, and she is really underwhelmed when she just gets a plate of rice, <laughs> a lumpy plate of rice brought now, to I her. I am confused because my understanding would that be you would get a risotto with chunky scallops and shrimp in it yes this plate does appear to be only rice yes i believe i would also assume that i'm going to get my starch and some protein included as opposed to it just being like infused into the rice yeah so it looks like it's just it's just there in the goo so yes i don't know uh but i'm kind of with her but then she wants uh, spaghetti on the side because every meal comes with spaghetti, but that's a double starch. Uh-huh. And then he'll eat her meatballs, but oh, the order doesn't come with meatballs, so you got to get those. On. This stresses me out so bad because having worked in restaurants, I was never a waiter, but I was busboy and stuff. I just want when the waiter comes to my table, I just want like everyone's order to just be given like as efficiently as possible, like bop 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 up around. Don't waste their time be efficient and i just it's just like one of those like weird ocd not ocd but just like weird control things i have where it's like everyone should follow the unwritten rules that i have in my head Mm -hmm. so when people start tweaking orders or breaking down the menu or ordering things like a couple weeks ago i was at a bar with my buddy and there's like a bar menu, but you're not allowed to get those things to go because they want you to just it's like a cheaper menu. So they want yeah. you to eat it there. But he's still trying to like order a bunch of shit and then tells her like all to go. And she's like, I, I can't do that. And I was just <laughs> sitting like shriveling in my chair next to him as he's doing this because I'm like, please stop, please, please. I, and I, I have serious issues. This is why I like can't go out with certain people. Because it, I, I cringe too hard when they talk to waiters and stuff. But also, if you're ever rude to a waiter or anything, oh I, yeah, I can't, I cannot deal with you ever. No, it's an ever. automatic turnoff. 
like friendship wise, lover wise, whatever. It's a turn off. Everything, man. Even there's a local guy who came and asked him. He goes into the bar. He goes, "Uh, give me a beer." It's like, don't say give me a beer. It says, "Hey, could I get a beer? Would you get me a anything but give me, dude? (laughs) Fuck." All right, rant over. I feel better. So uh, there is so much cigarette smoking in this movie. Yes. By the way, it makes me. I feel no compulsion to smoke again. I just every time I see smoking now, it just makes me happy to be a ex smoker. <laughs> but it, it looks, it looks miserable. Honestly, smokers never cough in movies, and so I feel like movies present this fake side of smoking where it's like everyone's just smoking, but no one's having respiratory issues or anything. If you smoke a pack a day. Right. You're gonna have like a hack. You're gonna have a fucking cough. You're gonna be coughing up phlegm. That's just like the life, man. And you rarely see that in movies. You never see Humphrey Bogart wake up in the morning and cough up a lung before lighting his first cigarette. You know? Right. He just always rolls over and looks cool and yeah. Yeah. That's bullshit. <laughs> so um if anyone out there is struggling with cigarette smoking, I highly recommend Alan Carr's Easy Way to Quit Smoking. It helped me and Paul F. Tompkins and many other people. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Look at that. You get a little bit of philanthropy with this podcast. (laughs) I love it. I mean, I don't need Uh, the advice personally, but I'll take it. This, yeah. So this first scene with this couple, this is definitely like moving into bakery into the back of house. I, I don't have the patience for front of house. People who work front of house and who have the patience to put up with customers like this, and customers who are so... I mean, I live in the wine country, so Mm -hmm. you get these entitled fucking people out here, and it's unbelievable what they expect, and when their expectations are not met as a tourist or whatever, it's unbelievable, some people, how much of an asshole they can be, or talk down, or be condescending, or believe that rules don't apply to them. It's it it's infuriating sometimes. And this is the crux, the front of house, back of house uh, dichotomy is the crux of the issue between the two brothers, really, because Secundo plays the front of house and he has learned more American uh, than his brother. He has he acts more American than his brother. He lusts after a Cadillac. He wants to be a fancy businessman. and. Primo only wants to make great food and thinks the customers should appreciate that no matter what, and that they should only come to the restaurant for his great food. And the front of house service is really just kind of a byproduct of the people coming and getting these, these dishes. It's definitely a combination of both, but I've definitely been like that asshole, like, Front of house doesn't fucking matter if the quality of product is good. Yes. You know, but that's just not true. Yep. That's just what I want to exist. But, you know, again, I, I, I sometimes like project what I want onto customers, but it's like, no, that's, you can't do that because everyone's fucking different. So just because I don't want to be wined and dined and treated like a fancy boy. Right. Doesn't mean that other people also don't want that, you know? But. The, I think Secunda is a great front of house. Oh yes, guy. And the way that this scene is almost like a little juggling act, where uh, he keeps grating the cheese onto the guy's spaghetti, uh, 
and more cheese. Yeah. <laughs> and he keeps kind of tapping him on the arm and he, without even paying attention, just keeps putting more cheese on and then goes back to helping the woman. Uh, and it's a little, the three of them do this little almost comedy routine to introduce you to the world and kind of the, the main conflict between the brothers. Um, I love that the primo, he's like, I'm going to go talk to them. I'm going to go talk to them. Secundo flings the door open and goes, there they are. Go talk to them. And he looks at them and he's like, nah, they're Philistines. I'm not going to go talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> like he, he was all talk, but when he was actually presented with the, the, the real world option of going and talking to your customers, he's like, Nah, I don't want it. Yes. It's uh, ridiculous, and uh, I love his... He rants. I mean, later, um, when he's criticizing the restaurant up the street, he just doesn't say that they serve shitty Americanized food. He says they're raping cuisine. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying, Jesus, primo, that's, <laughs> that's some heavy language, man. Yes. Fuck hell. So... Uh, Secundo goes to the bank. He's been called there apparently by one of the bank managers who tells him that the bank will have to call in their loan at the end of the month. Um, they're going to have to foreclose on the restaurant if they don't receive the brother's payment. Uh, they've been spotty in their history up to this point in the last couple of years. And apparently they're on their last legs as far as goodwill is concerned with the uh, bank. It's a classic drag me to hell scenario. Mm -hmm. He's Secundo is trying to lay out the situation and like why they're struggling and how it's going to get better. And the bank manager is just hearing none of it. Yes. And as we see later, Secundo hides everything from his brother, seemingly. Yes. Um, again and again, we see that there's so little communication between these two that they both have lots of secrets. I love that you cut from hearing this at the bank that they need to make more money or they're not going to make it. And it cuts back to Primo accepting a painting as a payment for a meal, a painting that one of their patrons <laughs> has done as payment for the meal. Uh, hey, if anyone, if any listeners want to send me a painting, feel free. <laughs> I'm not going to give you anything in return, but I'll put it on my wall. <laughs> Unless it's bad, then I won't. I might put it on the fridge for a couple days. <laughs> uh, Next to my report card. <laughs> uh, so Secundo brings up the uh, possibility that they would take risotto off the menu because it's one of the higher priced items. It costs a lot. It's very time consuming. Um, and I love Primo's suggestion. Then uh, he says, maybe we should put... Um, Como se dice, you know, people love them. What, hot dog? Hot dog? <laughs> <laughs> On the menu. People love those. This was funny because this definitely reminded me, I had one bakery I worked at, the pastry chef and the bread baker were co-owners, mm -hmm. but the bread baker owned like three quarters of the bakery and the pastry chef owned 25%. Okay. And so there was a real awkward like power dynamic and when they would like, argue about a product or there was just like it was like there was two bakeries in that kitchen yeah. there's two separate businesses and they would like rarely come together but they would always talk shit about the other one's products and stuff <laughs> i'm like guys this seems so toxic and destructive and ass backwards oh like a way to make good food 
is to make it out of spite for each other. <laughs> this is so stupid. You're both in your like mid to late fifties. Like, come on now. Oh my god. Come on now. Uh, down the street is another restaurant called Pascal's Italian Grotto, and business is booming. It's an Italian grotto, but it it's lit up like a casino on the outside. <laughs> yes, there's so much neon. It's got neon lights and flashing and. Like stars and a doorman, like it's like a glitzy, glamorous place to be. Yeah, the inside looks like um, in Goodfellas, and they do the same kind of shot, although the place isn't as expansive. But they the camera glides through this whole place. We get these locked off static shots in the Brothers Restaurant Paradise, and in Pascal's, everything is like it is. It seems like a casino. There's a lounge singer at one end. Um, Pascal is in there. The guy who owns the place is in there lighting Cherry's Jubilee on fire okay. and throwing it around the room. <laughs> I am not on board with flaming desserts, uh-huh. flaming alcohol shots, nothing on fire. He's spinning around holding a pot of molten flaming sugar, and he spins in 360 degrees <laughs> holding this thing over people's heads. <laughs> like, I- I've seen enough incompetent shit at restaurants to not trust you with giving me third degree burns yes so you you can piss right off with anything that comes out on fire like keep that in the kitchen don't do that shit table side you know uh it's not on fire but have you ever had a, a mocajete no it sounds enchanting though so a mocajete is kind of the same idea as like a sizzling fajita except for it's a big bowl made out of lava stone that gets super hot. And so they make kind of a soup in it. Um, and all of the ingredients are inside this. It traditionally also has like cactus layered in with the meats and some cheeses and stuff. Um, but those things come out in there super hot. And I almost always burn myself on them, but I almost always order them when they're available. That's okay. I, I don't mind hot things or yeah. like a hot skillet. That's fine. It's when it's molten sugar, because, like, the pastry chef I worked with, he always had a rag, a damp rag, nearby him when he was working with hot sugar. So that way, if it gets on your skin at all, you immediately hit it, Mm because that's the only way that you're... If if you don't have that, there's no way to get molten sugar off your skin. And it's it, it can burn you so fucking bad. Um, Truly scary. So when I see stuff like that, where he's like spinning around with a whole saute pan full of fire and sugar, I'm terrified. You're not into people. it at all. The, no. It gives me no. the same feeling as um, at the beginning of Dune, when Paul has to put his hand in the box and it like flays the skin off, or gives him the feeling that it's flaying the skin off. I was just listening to Dustin's podcast, Nerds, Geeks, and Kitchen Sinks, which is a great podcast if you want just. A lot of Marvel stuff and random movies and geeky stuff. Um, And he was talking about Dune. And I've never read it, and I've never seen it. I know very little about it. But they specifically brought up that scene as kind of like David Lynch's interpretation of it versus what's actually in the text and stuff. I'll definitely see the new one. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be split in two, right? Yeah. The HBO. Oh, is it going and, on and HBO? Is it, I think so. Is it Denis Villeneuve? Villeneuve? Yes. 
I still need to see Blade Runner 2049. It's been on my list for a long time. And Arrival is one of the most powerful theatrical experiences I've ever had. I... Seeing Arrival blind with my friend. And that was my first time in a reclining <laughs> new wave theater. Yeah. With the new fancy sound system and everything. And it was it was just mind-blowing. Mind-blowing experience that really like changed me. Uh, now I feel bad that I haven't seen it. The only one I've seen of his, I think, is Prisoners. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, we should watch some Villeneuve movies next, yeah. for sure. So There's some good ones. Uh, Pascal is another Italian immigrant, um, but his restaurant serves Americanized Italian food, and uh, the place literally looks like hell like everyone is supposed to be laughing and having a good time but it looks kind of grotesque and overblown and it's drenched in this deep red light and when you meet pascal he's holding that flaming uh saute pan and even the the um wallpaper behind him looks almost like flames and he's like cackling as he waves it around uh it's just like he's made a deal with the devil to get all of the business that he has I love your view of that. I didn't see that, but that's so funny because you're really spot on. That's really wonderful. Uh, yeah, you get. Um, is this? Oh no, it's later. Is this where we get there? They have the meeting in his office. Uh, that's a little bit later. We get okay. first. Um, Secundo kind of picks on Primo for having a crush on the florist, who's played by Allison Janney. Um. We see Primo visit his friend, the barber, Alberto. And here's another split between the two brothers. Um, Primo, as much as he can, still speaks in Italian. Um, and Secundo is, speaks much more English and has apparently lost some of his Italian even. Because a couple times when uh, Primo says something in Italian, Secundo will say what? And make him repeat it in English. Um, and we also get the introduction of uh, Phyllis played by Minnie driver uh, and Secundo's in the back of his car, making out with her. She pushes him wanting to make love. Secundo says that he wants to wait until he's under some less pressure and more set. Basically it just comes down to money. Um, he wants to be so successful. They were talking about having sex for the first time during this, right? Yes. That's Initially that's, Initially, that was what I thought, but then towards the end of the conversation, I thought maybe it was more about she wants him to propose. But no, she says, we've done other things. Right. So. Uh, but I think he's, yeah, he's putting I, everything I was, on. I was, I was surprised by Secundo's uh, romantic storyline. Yes. I, 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 it, I didn't see it coming in this kind of movie, but I... I actually really appreciate that it, it rounds him out as a real character with flaws. Um, based on what we see later, though, there is no way that I could double time either one of these women. <laughs> but especially... They're both... Oh my god, they're both drop-dead gorgeous. <laughs> yes. Young Minnie Driver is so charming and so cute in this role. And she's so sweet to him. and. Primo and Cristiano, like when she comes and helps at the restaurant later, she's just 
charming and willing to be there for these brothers to help them out. It's so sweet. She's a delight, which makes Secundo a real piece of shit. <laughs> yes. For doing this. Um, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't dance around it. And it doesn't try to, like, give Secundo reasoning for it. It it presents him as being, a, you know, a piece of shit for doing this. Yep. He's definitely in the wrong. Um, yeah. So Secundo later walks down to Pascal's to talk to the owner. Uh, he's played by Ian Holm. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier. Um, he's come what to do ask. I rec- Sorry, what do I recognize Ian Holm from? Alien. He's. Oh, yeah. He's um, the android. What's the first android's name? Uh, is that Ash? It is Ash. Ah, oh, good call. Thank you. Yes. You were, you were Johnny on the spot with that one. Because he's just. He has so much that guy. He was also, was he Bilbo in the uh, um, first Lord of the Rings? I haven't watched a Lord of the I tried. It was like six months into quarantine, so it was probably in like September or October last year. I was like, you know what? I feel like I'm going to watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm-hmm. And I turned it on, and I got like six minutes in to hobbit no fellowship of the ring yes and i was like uh no this is way too much for me i can't i can't go through all of this plot setup and all of this character <laughs> setup and like i and there you know i have the extended ones i was just like i can't do this like, yeah this is too much for me maybe in another five years i i tried it with my oldest daughter who we successfully got through like all the star wars movies and uh when she was a little older all the saw movies and it was the same kind of situation. We watched part of the first, the fellowship uh, of the ring and she was just turned off and we never revisited it. I wonder if it was just at the time, there wasn't really anything that was on such a big spectacle mm-hmm. scale that we were all into it just because it was like an incredible production. Whereas now it feels a little more commonplace with, advancements in technology and increases in budget for things and you know so many movies have that gigantic feeling now oh for sure it's uh it doesn't seem like quite the undertaking although doing them all back to back and out in the wilds uh, with as much actual nature and stuff as they dealt with is still impressive but something being technically impressive doesn't make it a movie that i want to watch necessarily uh yeah i Definitely hear you there. Um, so I feel that way about a lot of just top 100 movies of all time or whatever. It's like, I understand why this is important. I understand why this is significant. But for my personal taste, this just does not do anything for me. Yeah. Um, I think The Revenant for me was like that. Uh where I did not appreciate the rest of the film because like technically I'm watching it and I'm like, this camera work must've been really difficult in these environments. And I can't actually even enjoy the rest of the movie because I'm spending the whole time thinking about the steady cam operator walking backwards up a hill in the snow uh, to capture a shot or something. I'm that's funny. I'm, I have not done any film production, so I usually am pretty good about, being able to separate the two and 
have the experience the first watch and then after that be more analytical yeah so oh, look at that dog behind you that's yeah. a cute dog <laughs> that is a cute dog big old, big old dog look at her um so this is the scene where secundo uh and pascal sit down in pascal's office uh and the scene is shot really wacky like yes what did you think of this the the table the framing, lamp framing yes. there, yeah there's a very specific desk lamp that Initially, it cuts off half of Pascal's face, and Primo is framed kind of perfectly underneath it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just have a real basic thing of just, like, it shows the divide between these two men, ideologically, logistically, yeah. everything. And then, you know, Pascal slams the lamp down at the end, because, I don't know, he's trying to force them into his world. And so he forces down the barrier because he's just trying to get these brothers to be his employees by yeah. any means necessary, essentially, as we find out later. It's literally the moment that he reveals that he wants the brothers to close up their restaurant and come work for him. He slams the the lamp out of the way between the two of them. Oh, that's, that's good foreshadowing. Yeah. Um, Pascal tells Secundo that he can't lend him the money, but that he will put in a good word with jazz legend Louis Prima. Uh, hopefully then he kind of tells a couple stories to illustrate how getting some celebrities into his restaurant helped him take off. Um, so he, he sells Secundo on the idea that as long as they impress Louis Prima, the brothers will be fine. I think it's this, around this point, Pascal says, it's never too. It's never too much. It's always not enough. Bite your teeth into the ass of life. Yes, <laughs> I, I thought it was a, a funny little saying. Um, yeah, Louis Prima. Suppose for some reason having a celebrity visit your restaurant is going to be the cure all and fix all of your problems. Yep. So, uh, Primo pushes back when he hears this plan. He doesn't know that it was Pascal that suggested it to begin with um, because he would have dismissed it right out of hand. But he thinks once again, he reiterates that people should come to the restaurant for the food and that they'll occasionally, or that they'll eventually become educated enough to appreciate his food and what he does. Yes. And as Pascal said before, people want to look at their plate and see a steak and know it's a steak and see potatoes and know they're potatoes. Yes. Uh, I like how he puts it. He goes, uh, he wants to look down and see a steak and think, I like steak. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what, um, because everyone in this is doing accent work. Like, I mean, half the cast is doing this Italian accent, uh, which is pretty enjoyable. Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen anything online that like drags them for doing bad accents. So I'm assuming they're all good. Um. I honestly, I have no idea. Yeah, so, okay. it could be good, could be bad. I don't know. I think it's all right. I I, <laughs> I do know, know that um, Tucci wanted to write the movie and create the movie in response to getting um, you know, pigeonholed as like a thug or a gangster in movies. He would always get these bit parts. Yeah, really? I can't. Yeah. I don't see Stanley Tucci as a thug. No, but apparently early on. 
Like that's what he felt he was getting. Um, yeah. So he wanted to show a more full, well-rounded experience of Italian Americans. Um, Primo goes to the flower shop to order flowers for their big night. Uh, he flirts with Anne, Alice and Janney a little bit, but he does not ask her to, to the, come to the party. I love that Primo climbs into the flower display like it's a walk-in <laughs> refrigerator or yes. something. And so, <laughs> he's like squeezing his body inside of this thing to reach for the flower. She's like, I'll set, don't, I'll set you up with something nice. Don't worry about yes. it. <laughs> I think they, as the movie progresses, uh, yeah, Alice and Janney and Tony Shalhoub have great chemistry together. I really, really love how sweet and genuine their connection seems to be. Yeah, they come off as so charming and um, all the little like picadillos and difficulties that he has speaking English. Uh, she sits there very patiently and talks through them with him, which is very sweet. You know, it's like she doesn't ever kind of hand wave him or go, oh, yeah, I get it, or mock him for not knowing the words. She always helps him along and understanding all of his what he's trying to get out. He's, he seems his most passionate when he's interacting with her. Oh, definitely. Especially about food. When yes. he's talking to her or showing her food or letting her taste his sauce, that's when he's like feeling his mojo again. You know? Yes. Yeah. I've got a note uh, about that in a couple minutes here when they're, when he's showing her his kitchen. Um, Secundo stresses again to Prima how important this night is. He tells him that he doesn't think they'll get another chance, but he doesn't really elaborate on that. He hasn't told him that the bank is going to foreclose yet explicitly. Again, another, another thing that he's just withholding. Yeah. It's just, he's, he, acts like he's trying to protect his brother, but he's keeping him in the dark and not letting him make actually informed decisions uh, about what is happening to them is what's really going on. Um, Phyllis shows up to help the men get ready for the evening. They all start to cook, including the preparations on the, um, they call it Timpano in the movie. It's also known as a Timbalo, uh, which have you ever seen one of these before? Uh, I've seen, pictures of them and it it looks so unique and strange to me because it's 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 the size of a cake slice it's about i don't know six to eight inches tall Mm -hmm. but the the cross section you just get like sliced meatballs sliced hard-boiled egg you know sauce it's it just looks very strange to me as an american um yeah. It's nothing I've seen before. It's the closest thing I would say is like we have like a chicken pot pie or something. Um I, being from the Midwest, I think of like a Chicago pizza, like a deep dish pizza. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but this is made like a drum uh is what it's named after and they use eggs or cheese inside as a binder, but there's layers like a lasagna of different pastas and eggs and cheeses and vegetables and sausages. Um, like Sean said in this like six or eight inch tall, uh, dish. And there's a place here, Coco's Italian market that actually serves them. Um, which I am dying to go try just for the uniqueness of it. I'm really impressed also that 
when oftentimes when you bake something like that, you'll get like a real nice crust standing tall. But then when you slice into it, it'll be cavernous. Yes. Where all of your fillings have shrunk down to the bottom, but the crust is still standing. This is bottom to top filled Mm -hmm. perfectly. Um, It looks so cool. Have you made pasta dough before? Uh, Not for years. I really liked the little pasta dough making sequence that they showed in this. Yeah. It just reminds you again, like, God damn, it's so simple. You just... Flour, Flour eggs, and, and a little bit of salt, and uh-huh. that's it, man, you know? But again, it's like, when I had a girlfriend living with me, we'd make pasta and stuff and have those nights, but now, being bachelor, living by myself, just, <laughs> I can't be bothered, you know? Well, uh, Secundo, Secundo gets a call and supposedly leaves to talk to their liquor guy, um, and... As he's leaving, we see a chef come running out of the back door of Pascal's with his apron on fire in slow motion. Yes, I was so confused about... Because Pascal's chasing out after him with... Oh, I recognize the manager, or whoever like Pascal's yes, the doorman right-hand man was. Yep. But I don't know... I don't remember who it was. It's Liev Schreiber. It's Liev Schreiber, that's right. Yeah. In a non-speaking role. Yep. Yeah, that was wild to see him just standing there off the side of frame not doing anything. Yeah. But I was so confused because it looks like they're chasing him out of the ki- uh, kitchen like they lit him on fire to fire him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, trying to read uh, Pascal's lips, it looks like he says, you fucking guy, which is what he says repeatedly in the movie. Uh, but I have seen bosses get angry when people have accidents though yes because just like you fucking idiot but it's not the right time (laughs) uh this is where after this um we've we've also been introduced by this point to pascal's wife Mm -hmm. correct yes and uh this is where we find out that uh secondo is a cheater yep because he has to run out real quick and get the alcohol while everyone else is still, including his girlfriend's back cooking at the restaurant, he runs off to see Pascal's wife. Yes, Gabriella, played by Isabella Rossellini. It's like, dude, you're, you kind of suck, Secondo. <laughs> and so in their scene, like, as soon as they're done having sex, he says, hey, can you call your booze guy? And basically wants her to use her charms to get him a deal. Um, and they have a little bit of a fight about that. Like Gabriella is jealous about Secundo's girlfriend and feels like she's being used, but also, yes. Yeah. But the way she talks to the, the liquor delivery guy also sounds like she might be having a thing with him. She says, she tells him when your wife finally leaves, you give me a call. (laughs) Like, Oh, I didn't catch that line. Yeah. That's funny. Um, yeah, so after this, this is where Secondo goes to the Cadillac dealership, right? Yep. So, this, this car salesman is real weird, and I like him. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, oh, I detect an accent. Where are you from? Italy. Oh, Italy is beautiful, huh? Yeah, have you been there? Nope, never. <laughs> yeah, nope, never. Why don't you get in the car? <laughs> yeah, and then later he goes... Secundo goes, his hand is a cat. How'd you break your hand? And he's just like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who is this guy? He's a weirdo. That's Campbell Scott, the co-director. 
Oh, fun. Yes. Fun, fun. Um, and now we get, after this, we get my favorite scene of the movie. The wordplay scene about... <laughs> uh, Primo says it was raining outside, and Secundo starts to laugh as Pascal's there about, you don't need to say outside because it can't rain inside. Yeah. And Pascal and Primo's inability or unwillingness to understand the joke cracks me up. Yep. The... And, but Secundo won't let the joke die. He keeps, like, digging further in, like, trying to salvage. <laughs> and it reminded me very much of my bad jokes. The And it feels like the scene has ended at least twice. That they're going to drop it. And, like, that's just the end of the scene. But he goes back in again. Uh, and he's like, I don't... And then eventually Pascal's like, I don't get it. And he's like, I didn't think it was very funny. Why are you picking on your brother like that? <laughs> It's just like <laughs> they don't understand, uh, and it's beautifully acted. And once again, kind of all in one shot, uh, the the little bit plays out. Yes, it is, I think. I don't think we get a close-up. We get a close-up of Primo when he discovers that Pascal is the one who suggested Louis Prima come to the restaurant. Like, it, it shows all oh, three yeah. men, and then when we get that moment, you get a close-up um, on Tony Shalhoub just looking like he doesn't like Pascal. He thinks that he's a shit. And so he rightfully won't, so. Yeah. He doesn't want to take anything from him. Um, even this, you know, supposed suggestion that they get someone famous in the place. So after this, um, my next note is eggplant toss. Oh, when uh, Secundo and, and yes. yelling at Phyllis for no apparent reason. Uh, it's a real yeah. cool move to cheat on your girlfriend and then blow up at her because you feel guilty about it. So then you start. But I, yeah. I had boss. Oh, my God. I had a boss that would throw tantrums and like throw shit around the kitchen and bang his hand on the steel tables and shit. It's just like. Really, man? You need to throw tantrums? Like, I, I get it. We made a mistake. You don't need to be a baby about it. Like, a mistake was made. Let's fix it. Let's not be fucking psychotic. Because then after that, what happens is when that happens, the kitchen goes completely silent. As we'll see here in a minute, their kitchen, as they're prepping, is there's not a word spoken. And that's always a really bad sign in a kitchen that... The food is going to be shit because mm-hmm. everyone's pissed off or everyone's too afraid to talk. But either way, <laughs> when that happens in a kitchen, everything suffers because the teamwork is gone. Right. Uh, and we see the split because Secundo is cutting these, these eggplants uh, and having his fit with Phyllis. Primo... Uh, is at the barbershop complaining about Pascal, and then he makes a call to his uncle back in Italy, and the uncle offers him a job. He says he has a restaurant now, and he would like Primo. Everyone in the movie repeatedly says what a good chef Primo is, and how authentic and and great his food is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But he's incomplete, because... Like you said, there needs to be a balance between the back of house and the front of house. Mm-hmm. And by only valuing what he does in the back, it completely um, negates all the work that Secondo does in the front. And as we see, like Secondo kind of has 
animosity been building up in him for years, I think, because everyone pays so much attention to Primo and the food, but they don't see all the work that Secondo is doing, just keeping things up and running. Yeah, and this movie, they feature multiple times, like, long scenes of either them cooking or right at the beginning of Secundo getting the restaurant ready. And he goes around and he fixes the tables from like, that's got a wobbly leg and uh, he moves the planter out front, like a few inches to the side to make it more pleasing. Um, He picks up a little bit of trash off, off of the sidewalk in front. Like he is meticulous about his appearance and what the customers should expect when they come into the place, I think. And that's extremely important. It's easy to mm-hmm. overlook, but when you walk into a place and you see dirty things or things that aren't cleaned or whatever, it definitely impacts you before you've even tasted the food. Yes. So Anne delivers the flowers. Uh, Secundo discovers that Primo didn't ask her to come to the party, so he insists that she come as well. Uh, Being a good brother, I like. I like this part. Yeah. These guys do care for each other. They hate each other because they're brothers and they've been working with each other for far too close for far too long, but they still want each other to be happy, I think. And I like that Secundo gets these little moments where, because he is shitty otherwise, that we do see that he's a more complex person than just one aspect of him. Yeah. And, uh, um, uh, I'm Alice and Janney, I, I, really like her performance in this movie again. I, I just think she comes off so genuine and mm-hmm. nice and honest. Uh, the brothers continue to prep the food along with Cristiano. Uh, and then we see kind of the beautiful place settings that they set at this one long table uh, running down the center of the restaurant. And then the men kind of present themselves. Uh, Primo is in his clean kitchen whites as is Cristiano Secundo's in a white tuxedo. Uh, this is where Phyllis returns forgiving Primo from, for blowing up earlier uh, after telling him that he needed to spend some time alone. Um, and she looks beautiful. Her dress, it looks very art deco and like the staggered shoulders that's, that are on it. It just looks fantastic. Yeah. She looks amazing. Um, Secundo promises Primo that after tonight, everything will get better. He still is a big believer in that Louis Primo is going to show up and fix everything for him somehow. Um, Soon, the place is packed out. The Cadillac dealer is there. Uh, He brought one of his cars to show off to the jazz guys. Um, There's a photographer, a reporter. Uh, I like that it's almost like the setup for a joke as the camera pans around the room. and you see all these different types of people. It's like a rabbi and a priest and the, <laughs> the Cadillac dealer. Uh, just all the people from around the neighborhood show up. Yeah, well, I do like, the, like the even, even the produce guy who only had like a 30 second scene. He's pretty yes. heavily featured towards the end of this. Um, all of these little tiny characters that we've interacted with come back uh, for this yep. one big party, which I think is really fun. And... Secundo is making the rounds of everyone, telling everyone to have whatever they would like on the house. He's pouring drinks for everybody. Um, Anne shows up, and Primo shows her uh, his, I guess, some family pictures and all the paintings that they've taken in. 
Primo over eats, the years. Primo throws fresh basil in his mouth before he goes to yes. talk to her that to, <laughs> to freshen it up. I thought that was a great little touch. Um, everyone starts dancing uh, to Louis Prima songs. It looks uh, like a and, great party. Looks so yeah. fun. Um, Pascal shows up with Gabriella on his arm and a bottle of champagne for the brothers, insisting Louis Prima will be there before too long. Um, and but we once again get a little hint at his deviousness. He gestures at the big table that they laid out and says, "It looks like the last fucking supper." <laughs> <laughs> he Which. also says to Allison Janney, "Oh, I love that corset," and then leans over and kisses her boob. Yes, his her corsage. Yeah, he doesn't. Which of course, one, why would he kiss the corsage? The cor- whatever. I but, don't know. But he kissed her boob. <laughs> yeah, Ugh. he's real gross. Yeah. He's yeah. super handsy. And I mean, earlier he bit Stanley Tucci on the ass before <laughs> telling him to take a bite out of life's ass or whatever. That's true. Uh, uh, this, this point where Mini Driver gets drunk, right? Oh, um, yeah. Her and Gabriella wind up out front. And yeah, she pukes. And after she pukes, I'd love this exchange that they have. Um, she says, "Men make you think that they have secrets, but they keep talking and talking, and they they <laughs> they uh, they just say nothing." And I yes. just thought that was so true of guys who try to like present themselves as this enigma- enigmatic, mysterious man, but just under the surface, there's just nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's definitely what um, Secundo has made himself out to be at this point, like. He's dressed really nice, especially earlier in the day when he wears that yellow sweater. Uh, like, I would love to be able to pull off that look that he that he has. Oh, his hair is uh, always perfect. Yeah, everything about oh, yeah. Stanley Tucci in this movie is like so prim and proper and well maintained. Yep. Um, back in the kitchen, Primo is showing off his cooking for Anne. This is where um, he makes a Florentine sauce, I believe. Uh, but he tells her that. Uh, he doesn't like to put cream in it because the cream hurts his stomach. Uh, and then he tells her that he'll have to take her uh, around some of the towns in Italy, telling her like what good food they have. Um, and he tells her that to eat good food is to be close to God. And this is what we were talking about when he's like the most passionate when it comes to the combination of her and the food. This scene is like, it's so charming and you would have to be swept off your feet if you were in that that kitchen with him, I think. Oh yeah, Shalub's Shalub's great hand. That true passion that he has, definitely. You know, when you catch someone who you catch them on the right topic, and all of a sudden their eyes kind of get a fire behind them, and they light mm-hmm. up and they start going on and on about something. It's so it's so fun when you find find that thing in a person that just transforms them into somebody who's so excited and so energetic. Um, I love finding that in new people and new friends. Um, the brothers, I don't know what time it's supposed to be, but it's fairly late. Everyone is super drunk at this point. Um, they're doing a conga line uh, after the produce guy has been lip syncing to Mambo Italiano very earnestly into a wine bottle. Yes. Uh, which is great. Um, so the brothers decide to get everything back on track and serve the dinner, even though Louis Prima has not shown up yet. Feels like it's um, at least midnight. Yes. And 
judging by the fact that later, kind of at, when everyone has had uh, dessert, they say that it's three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um. So I don't know about because they kind of do it in a montage, but the first court is risotto. First course is risotto. Yeah. Uh, and he's made three different kinds, and it almost looks like the Italian flag. There's a um, pesto, a plain, and a seafood, or something like that. Yes. Uh, which, which one? Are you, which one are you choosing? I think I'd go with the seafood. I'm going pesto. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love pesto. I've never had it in like a risotto, and I would imagine it would have to be incredibly fresh coming out of that kitchen. Yeah, I. One thing that I find funny is that risotto is such a common dish now, but I guess in the mid '90s, maybe it hadn't quite mm-hmm. made its way to America yet because they definitely kind of mention again and again, like, "What is this risotto? What? What is yes. this new experimental dish you have?" You know. And uh, I like when. Primo and Anne are in the kitchen, and he tells her, now picture this. This this word I'm going to tell you. Lasagna. Lasagna bolognese. <laughs> and she's like, ooh. <laughs> um, the, the second course is the timpano. And everyone is gathered around, uh, and you see them all making like, ooh and ah faces when they look at it, getting cut into, do you know um, that feeling of serving something that's baked where you can't check it is very scary. Whether it's like a pot pie or anything where for one thing, you're not guaranteed that it's going to release out of the mm -hmm. pan or whatever. And that is devastating when you bake something and then it gets stuck to the bottom and your product like rips in half and you just like scoop it out. Oh. But then the other thing is, you know, they're, they're tapping it and checking it to see the bake, but it's so hard, man, with stuff like that. You just got to go yeah. on instinct. And sometimes it's just the smell and you're just picking up like, Oh, I can smell a little bit of burn. Like some parts of that dough are starting to go to a medium dark brown or it's so right. tricky, but that thing looked, Really cool and so sad. It also looked like it was about 30,000 calories. Oh, yeah. I mean, anytime you got like whole hard boiled eggs and chunks of sausage in there together and cheese binding it all up, yeah, that's gonna, <laughs> that's a, that's an artery blocker for sure. Sounds pretty good though. I kind of want to try it out with some Beyond sausages now. Yeah. Uh, and this is where <sighs> Pascal has the, most bizarre reaction to food I've ever seen. <laughs> Slams the table and goes, I should fucking kill you! And it's like, whoa, man. Yep. Like, everyone stops. And I, he walks over to Primo and says, I should fucking kill you for making me this best food ever and kisses him. But, like, dude, that's too much. Too much of a reaction there, Pascal. Which, uh, I mean... I think it says something about Pascal. I think he does genuinely appreciate um, how good of a chef Primo is I, and what he does. I think I'm, one reading I had into that was that's his excitement of he's thinking that's my future chef. Yes. And yep, exactly. I am going to profit off of this magic. And like yep. this whole, you know, as, as we'll find out, this whole thing seems to just be a test run that Pascal has set up. 
uh, it also it made we me, have a we have a montage before that happens, but um, it made me think of uh, did you ever see Once Upon a Time in Mexico? Uh, this that is a is that a sequel to uh, uh, Desperado? Desperado, yes, I did. Johnny yep. Depp is in it. Yeah, I remember. Yes, that. Uh, he kills the chef after he makes um, Perico Pibil. That is so good. Uh, he's like, I'm never going to have a meal this good again. And he goes back and, and shoots the chef in the head uh, <laughs> after he eats it. Uh, he's saying he has to balance the tables or something. Which I, I just remember Eyeless for- Johnny Depp. That's all I remember. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fucking coup d'etat. Uh, but that is a dish that, because of that movie, um, I made multiple times. Uh, where you take uh, a big uh, pork shoulder and wrap it in banana leaves with annatto seeds and orange juice and tequila, and you steam it all together until the meat is falling apart. Really? Yeah, it's great. That sounds good. Uh, Uh, I really like this montage that we get because it's just, you can tell that this is just like a drunken party. And I think it does a great job of capturing how decadent this night is or everyone's having the biggest feast of their lives and there's music and laughter and i it, it just really captured that essence of like a great party yeah um i like the it cuts back and forth between the brothers and cristiano bringing out all of the plate after plate after plate of gorgeous looking food um and then the the party goers and like they spill wine on the table and it soaks into the tablecloth at one point. Um, and they're all laughing and like uh, kind of eating off of each other's plates and pointing and just it looks like they're having a great time. How'd you feel seeing that little that little pig cooked after having watched <laughs> pig? I mean, it's a little rough, but, uh, you know, the, the part of me that that wants to go vegetarian definitely speaks up when things like that happen. And you're like the the writer and stalker. <laughs> yes. Um Yeah, this movie it's like I'm pescatarian, I was vegetarian for a long time where I didn't eat any fish and it's been like fourteen years since I had like meat meat. Um mm-hmm. I miss I think I just miss like the opportunity to try certain things sometimes. But overall I don't regret anything. I'm definitely feel happy with my choice and decision there and it's been well, nowadays yeah. with the fake meats man it's it's so much easier now to because you can still make anything you want now and with those like beyond sausages or impossible ground beef or whatever you can get pretty damn close to the real thing with those that's uh we talked about it. i think the next time i do crunch wraps i'm gonna do um impossible ground beef and i'm nice are you when it's an ingredient like that with a bunch of other ingredients and cheese and salsa yeah. and stuff, it's not even noticeable. Yeah, I wouldn't imagine so. And uh, I think it's a good first step, at least. Yeah, for sure. Um, um, so after this is where the after that montage, this is where the shoe drops that. Um, or no, this is where he gets caught cheating, huh? Secondo. Yes, uh, Pascal first apologizes for Louis Prima not showing up, and he says that he feels foolish. Uh, 
but a reporter who's there who to see Louis Prima said that he'd send a feud reviewer over to do a piece on the restaurant uh, and that it was one of the greatest meals he's ever had. Um, but I think that's too little too late. He said, but he uh, said it would take a few weeks or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then Gabriella and Secundo are kissing and Phyllis walks in on them. And she just turns and runs off. Secundo follows her. Uh, Gabriella and everything happens. Like there's very little plot in this movie. It all happens right here <laughs> because yeah. uh, Gabriella tells Primo that Pascal never called Louis Prima. And then she thanks him for the best meal she will ever have. Yes. And Pascal says he did it out of respect. And this is one thing I do not understand. Mm-hmm. Pa- uh, I- Pascal's motivation is this just a trial run to make sure that these guys are good enough for his business? Is he fucking with them? Is he, does he, yeah, what, what do you think his motivation is? I think he wanted them to have this evening. Like he is doing something shitty, but he thinks that this is a kindness bringing everyone together and having this big send off evening, this big party. Um, I think that it is, you know, if things had worked out his way, it would have been like, wow, we had to close our place, but at least we went out with this great big bang. And, uh, but of course he's been a shit the whole time. Yeah. And gets, gets caught. But the line, um, when after, um, Phyllis and Secundo have their fight. Oh, there's another, little bit but um pascal says he's playing the piano off to one side of the room and right before he admits that he set the brothers up for failure um he tells secundo that uh i used to play a little bit and he sounds so sad when he says it it's such like a little moment of you get this idea that maybe the piano was to him what cooking is to primo um and he let it go. Uh, and Secundo yells at him, um, telling him, you know, he's, he's uh, a fake and a liar. And Primo or uh, Pascal says, I'm a salesman. I'm anything I need to be at whatever time. Which, man, if that's not an indictment of sales staff. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit slimy, man. A little bit greasy. Doing whatever you need to to get that customer's trust, you know? Yep. Um, Phyllis ran out into the ocean. When Secundo finds her, he tries to talk to her, but she brushes him off. Good heavens, uh, mini driver in this scene. Oh, yes. She's in like a white corsage. Um, good lord. At, when she first gets out of the water, I thought she was like playfully splashing him. But yeah. no, she she's still super pissed off. And good, I'm yep. glad they didn't they did not get a resolution because she just storms off the beach and leaves him. Yep. And, she tells him, "I'm not even here anymore," and just leaves him. And I'm I'm really happy that Secondo did not get to get away scot free from all of this. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. And now Primo shows up down at the beach too, and this is where they have the the brother fight that's been building up for years seemingly 
And Primo yes. says, this place is eating us alive. We need to go back to Italy. We need to go back to our home, basically. And, and Secondo basically is saying, well, Italy is not my home. This is my yep. home now. This is, this is who I am. This is what I want to be. And, and they really butt heads. This fight is hilarious, though. How they're fighting and they're kicking mm-hmm. sand at each other and they're like wrestling like children and they're punching each other, but it's more of like hammer fists where you're just trying to like thud <laughs> the person without actually hurting the. Uh, it's a great fight the two of them have. Yeah, they they will yell from a distance for a while and then start grappling, and then uh, different times both of them wind up on the ground. Um, Primo steps on Secundo's chest for a second, like he, and he tells him, wait, stay there, stay still. You're always running towards something, stay still for a minute. Um, Primo tells him, I think it's particularly mean. Primo says, you've rotted, which yeah. like struck me as a very harsh, uh, you know, definitely not seeing his brother's side of things and just telling him that he's turned his back on, um, his heritage and everything because he wants to be more American. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if anything gets resolved. Um, I, yeah, because of this, I mean, they have the fight and by the end they're, they're no longer, they, they've come to whatever terms, you know, at least they finally have both spoken their minds, which my God, think of how much pain they could have avoided had they had, Good communication. Um, well, and finally, Secundo uh, tells Primo that the bank is going to foreclose, and Primo tells Secundo that he got a job offer back in Italy. Uh, and Secundo tells him to go back on his own; that he's not going to leave America. Yeah. Um, um. Yeah. It's it. It's a surprising ending because it's a tough ending. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't. I didn't catch what the last line of dialogue is because the final scene. I believe there's zero spoken word. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the next. Do you have anything before the next morning? No, it is. So yeah, we see Secondo uh, and um, helper boy. I don't remember his Cristiano. name. Cristiano Enrique Iglesias or Ricky <laughs> Martin or whatever. <laughs> whichever one of those pop stars it was, um, was hanging out. And he goes to make scrambled eggs. He goes, are you hungry? And they all look pretty hungover. Um, he turns the burner so hot on that restaurant-style stove. Yeah. Gets it hot, doesn't put any fat in there, salts the eggs a little bit, and then dumps the eggs in. Doesn't scramble them, though. He, like, t- fucks with them for, like, two seconds and then just leaves it as this, like, weird giant omelet looking thing but the heat is on so high that i'm almost positive he's burning those eggs and then he flips <laughs> it at the end and i think you can see like some browning but just a real weird way to cook scrambled eggs yeah i mean that's it more or less is how i make an omelet though like you know, i scramble them in the bowl and then pour them out it, and i do folded eggs rather than scrambled eggs so do and I. kind of yeah you gather all it all up towards the middle Yes. Uh, and let it cook, and then fold it over in one big yes, thing I don't, kind of at the I end. I don't want to have to use a spoon to get all the tiny little scrambled bits of eggs that you yep. bucked in the pan. I want one giant omelet-ish scrambled egg. Um, 
Yeah, and so he serves the he serves the bus boy, and but he leaves a little portion of egg in the pan. And Primo walks mm-hmm. in, and he just he gets him a plate, and cooks for his brother. The front of house cooks for the back of house, and they have a real beautiful little arm around the shoulder moment of nothing is spoken, but it feels like I've got your back and you've got mine. Regardless of how, you know what we fight or how we don't see eye to eye on things, it's a really uplifting, positive note. I think it's. I don't know what's going to happen after this, but at right. least these brothers are. You know, they they've said what I think they're better off now than they were thirty six hours ago when neither of them knew what the other was thinking. Yes, but even though they're hurting right now, at least the truth has been shed. And I feel like it's such a beautiful little moment. I mean, just this four or five minute scene of him cooking eggs and sharing the food with Cristiano. And Cristiano goes and tears off a hunk of bread, I think, um, and puts it on, puts a little bit on each plate. And after everything else that happened, because the movie feels like this drunken revelry for a while. And then you get into the heavy arguing, which the fight scene is very long. They're on the beach for a long time, yelling at each other. There's uh, bystanders watching them. Um, like I said, they wrestle each other to the ground. And then you get this kind of reprieve, this little moment where of understanding. And, you know, they come back together and they share the thing that connects them all the time, which is the food. Uh, and I think that it's it's one of my favorite like ending scenes of a movie because, like you said, nothing is resolved. We don't know where any of these characters are heading when this is over. Nothing is like, you know, like I've got my plane ticket back to Italy and you know, I'm going to go work for Pascal or whatever. It's like you don't know anything. But I think it's wonderful and like it's a lot like life in that way. Like you don't have to have all the answers right then, but you have that beautiful moment. Yes, I, I, I think that's why I think you summed it up well right there. This ending really speaks to me because it's not clean. Mm-hmm. Yet, and life rarely is. Life is always a give and take. Then there's, it's, it's like, how often do you feel like you really close a chapter of your life? You know, I, right. I feel like things are always ongoing in one way or another. And that's how this movie presents itself as well. So... Uh, once again, I wrote at the end of my notes, rate the damn movie. Yes. Yeah. I enjoyed this one a lot. Um, I think it's minimalism prevents it from being like a profound movie or something. But I think just Mm -hmm. as far as what food means and family relationships and stuff, um, I really enjoy it. and the performances are across the board great. So I would give this a, a four out of five. Very good. Uh I give this five out of five and a heart. Um the more times I've seen it, the more it hits me. Uh and kind of the more profound it seems, especially in the things that aren't said and 
kind of the staging and the moments in between beats. I think it's such a good little slice of life. Um, and I've not seen a movie that, that does what this movie does. I think it's unique in that way and lets you into a world that you don't otherwise know. Um, and I think it came from such a sincere place uh, in Stanley Tucci and his cousin that then they really translated that on the screen. And I love the performances. Tony Shalhoub was great. Uh, he's just charming and goofy, and uh, I love these guys. Well, I'm really happy you showed this one to me. I, I think I've heard of it, maybe, but I've definitely never seen it. Um, and I'm really glad I did. I enjoyed it a lot, and I think this pairing, this pairing of movies, says a lot about the power of food and its connection to memory and its connection to culture, and also our own identities as far as what we create or what we pursue in the kitchen or um, in in general. So. I, 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 these both just did a really great job of of hammering home how profound this thing is that we take for granted every day when we eat every single day and we don't think about it at all. But every time you make a food choice, you're, you're saying something about yourself. Yes. All right. I think that's all the profoundness I have in me for today. Um. Yes, I think my brain is done, and I should probably go eat some scrambled eggs now myself. <laughs> um, so thank you, listeners. Thanks for joining us again. We'll see you in two weeks with, um, I don't know, maybe it'll be a guest episode. I'm not sure yet. We'll, we'll figure it out. What do you think, Josh? Yeah. Uh, if we can figure out the timing, we'll get one. If not, it'll be the, the following one, I think the following yeah the, no not the following not the movie the following the following episode uh, will be a guest one ah i understand look yeah. at that our communication is as bad as primos and secundos <laughs> and on that note everybody go make some scrambled eggs for each other have a great week we'll see you again bye Nashville CA is filmed in front of a live studio audience. No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. If you would like to get in touch with the hosts of Nashville CA, you can't. <laughs>